Mentality Monsters I'm going to use the word with the Orange well Rugby team Someone press that arm Take it off Liverpool <laughs> Let's take it off the Reds and let's attach it to the Orlin Rugby team OTB AM Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app OTB AM with Gillette Labs Get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition available now all right, all right, all right, you're very welcome along. It's half past seven. It is Tuesday morning, I want to say. If you want to get in touch with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can get us youtube.com forward slash off the ball. Make sure you subscribe and then you'll be allowed to leave a comment. Uh, you can always text the show 0879-180-180 on WhatsApp if you want. Or you can get us at off the ball AM on Twitter. Adrian Barry is here of a Tuesday. What's going on? Morning, Jer. Also here is Colm. Colm, how are you? Jer and Adrian, good morning. What a treat. Adrian Barry. This early in the week. Mm. Well, Witcher. it was an emergency. It was an emergency situation. Not to tell. That we're dealing with. Not to tell. We have two award-winning broadcasters on the same show. Our first this choice, uh, first first choice number ten went down, and uh, it's supposed to show the quality placement. and strength and depth of the squad, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. A bit like the match you were on Saturday. You saw it there and then the strength and depth of Ireland. That's so we had John this morning into the conversation. Here. I did notice that there was no, uh, no. I, I certainly, I don't know. Maybe I missed your social media. Uh, <laughs> I, I would have, I should have gone looking for it. Uh, a little yeah. bit carried away. You know, you've you've been in those nice a few glasses of wine in jars. That's what we're cheese eating uh, seats before. And I, you know, this this would have been once in your life where the original tweet, where you're watching a rugby game, you go, oh, this might be the best thing in the world, was actually justified. The well, best, the other one was the fairly best Irish justified. team in any sport ever. The other one was justified, was also justified. And I mean, you know, it does lead us back into a conversation that's been happening about the number of Leinster players, obviously, in this team. This is me trying to, like, loosely uh, defend my previous argument. Which so I'm, I'm Your more previous argument, just remind uh, new, new viewers, we've got many of them. Um, I basically had said that Leinster are, did I say that? I said they were the greatest possibly, Irish possibly the greatest Irish team ever. Ever. They just won a quarter final in the Pro 14. No, it was, it, was a, it was either a semi final or I think it might have been a final at the Aviva. I don't, I don't think it was a final. I think, I'm not even sure it was a final. Was it? Maybe it was, no, it was. It was, it was against final. one of the Welsh teams. They beat a Welsh province at yeah, the Aviva. Yeah, but they had, to look at, look at, they had to do to get there. I think, that does, I think that argument does stack up. I mean, the ultimate argument to any of these conversations, including the one about Ireland, is that, well. Show us your medals. Yeah, but no, but also, who do they play? That's. No matter if Ireland want to win the World Cup later this year, you will have the brigade who just don't want to jump on board with things and will just say, nah, it's not as pervasive as soccer. The boxing achievements were better. And like, those are fair enough arguments. I don't know if to, what the right answer to any of that stuff is. But you can only beat what's in front of you there, Bill. Uh, yeah, OK. Good seats? Uh, they were a bit... Uh, they were in the corner a little bit. Um, I've had... Jeez, I've had some great experiences of different uh, seats at the Aviva... The most interesting one is probably I was for the November for the New Zealand game right behind the Havelock Square end, you know, the dipped end. Oh yeah, but I've only never been there. I've, I was sitting right in the seats directly behind the post. It was an incredible view. Now you can't see anything once the ball goes outside that twenty-two. It's like you're looking at the TV for most of the match. Yeah. Um, and this one, this one was so we were in the corner a little bit at the opposite end uh, where Ireland were scoring into the second half. So not a bad view of that. But um, yeah, yeah. It was a jeez. It was a nervy game. I didn't feel. I felt there was like a boisterousness on the way into the game. There was like a real sort of expectation before the game, and like a little bit of nervousness, but more so a sort of boisterousness. And then I think once things kicked off, it because Ireland were um, not what everybody expected over the uh, first sixty minutes. The atmosphere was 
I don't know. I don't want to say flat, but it was certainly a little bit of the fields would break out every now and then, and not everybody would get into it because everybody was kind of like, "Oh, I can't even really sing because this is uh, this is so bad." The time where they got most fuck up was every time the um, what's it called swing low uh, broke out, and then people would try to shush that by either jeering or uh, singing the fields. Mm. Um, to the point where I don't know if it was picked up on TV about four or five minutes into the second half Johnny Sexton was right down at the end Ireland had got a line out right down the English line and he had uh, he was there which you don't really tend to see from him and he was like giving it one of these to the crowd like for a good 15-20 seconds to indicate that he wasn't happy with the level of support oh, I didn't see that no yeah. I, I, I didn't notice it um, and it, it's relatively unusual yeah I, I, I don't mind the fact that the like it's tense so you shouldn't be you, you, your natural instinct when things are tense is to like grip your seat, yeah. sit on the edge of your seat. It's not to like, yeah, we're all here and we're pissed and we're blah, blah, blah. do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, like, I think that's fine. I thought I thought the atmosphere was good. I think I actually think the atmosphere has always been good when the games have been good. Uh, when we're playing and hockeying Scotland or Wales or Italy, people are going to the pub, but in, and they're coming back with their drinks because they were we're hockeying them. But like, I was the problem of people getting up and. Going to get pints, was it particularly pronounced in, in the game against England when the grand slam was on the line? Not my experience. I have to say it was one of the best games I've been at for... I, I see where you're going. It was one of the best games I've been at for, for that. Like, I can, all, I can remember almost... The biggest issue you had was that sort of when you're sat in those seats, you're go- always going to get people that are sort of way to your right where you're trying to see the action who are standing up uh, preemptively, too early, you know? Like... The early is, it, is, is it rude to shout at people anymore? No, I think sit, you're... Down, sit down! I think it's allowed. Anymore. It's like once one person goes... Yeah, everybody has to. There's like a thousand people behind them that have a knock-on impact. And I think you get lost in the game and... Still, also... What they, should, they should bring in, with immediate effect, having said all that, the uh, thing that they have at some of the American sports where if there's a moment of importance happening at the pitch, you're not allowed back to your seat. Wait until that's over and then go back. They should just bring that in with immediate effect. Ooh, that's tough to... Uh... Tough police, well, it? tough shit. If you're if you're going out for a pint or you're going for a wee, whatever. Who decides? You're, you're also the the uh, Freddie Stewart on the. Uh, um, a lot of pressure. Do you, the world. Do you know what a lot I'm of like uh, people are like, oh, I mean, do you know who I am? No, and, but also uh, it's not it's not you're not missing the game. So you're stood I'll, at the I'll window. I'll see you and or like, you're stood at the t- the top of the stairs. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it felt like watching a home that everyone was very excited in the stadium at the start of the match, and then everyone realised, oh, this is going to be a lot tighter. Yeah. For a lot longer than Hang we anticipated. There felt like uh, you almost could hear nervous chatter. Yeah, there was a lot of chatter where I was in a way that I haven't experienced fully at a lot of other games before where everybody was getting involved. There was like a cohort of about 10 people around and everybody was getting involved. Like debates. Saying, what did you think? What's yeah, happening yeah, here? Yeah, What's yeah. going on there? There was definitely that investment of like you took your seats and you were like we're in this together. So- soak this in. Everybody around you now remember those names. It was like a nerd- somebody needed to stand up and do a lion speech of look at the person around you, look to the person to your left, shake their hand. These are the people you're going to be sat with as Ireland win the first ever Grand Slam on home turf. But we have Dublin, in Dublin, obviously, we won on Ravenhill. Ravenhill also home Dublin, turf. In Dublin, yeah. Well, yeah. speaking of history being made, <laughs> I was intrigued to know from yourself what the reaction was like when Johnny Sexton broke the record. Because at that point, Ireland were 6-0 down. So mm. there was definitely a focus and uh, this game isn't going as planned. So that halves the deficit was there any sort of like, oh, fair play, Johnny? Because there was a standing ovation was for standing about ovation. five seconds, but the game resumed so fast that that was cut short. Uh, yeah, no, it did feel, it felt, it didn't feel like five seconds at the time. And it did kind of feel like, oh, we're standing up. Okay. But like, hang on a second. <laughs> I, we should tip the cap. But like, I got a second. There's a greater, uh, greater thing at play here. So yeah, I don't know. I think 
if it had happened later in the game, and we were. I think if it had happened games. against Italy when we were forty-four nil up, everybody would have. It would have been a raucous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was uh, appropriate to appropriate. the moment. Correct. Yeah. Uh, right. If you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. Oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number. You can leave a comment in the YouTube stream, or you can tweet us at Off the Ball AM. We're live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back neon night edition available now. Loads of news overnight that we just want to talk about briefly. Um, the English press are reporting that the Antonio Conte era is coming to an end. The Times are saying that the players think the Conte era is over. I think one of the other newspapers, might be The Guardian, are reporting that uh, he'll be sacked over the next few days and that it could potentially be Ryan Mason back in charge. The other thing is that Roy Hodgson has uh, taken up the uh, uh, Patrick Vieira gig. So um, they ignored Kenny Cunningham's uh calls for Paddy McCarthy to be given the job and it looks like Roy Hodgson is back in our lives when we thought that I mean this couldn't possibly he couldn't possibly come back but he's back um, and then the other news is that Scott Robertson has been given a four year deal by the All Blacks to be the New Zealand coach so Joe Schmidt won't be getting that gig and because um, Ian Foster had said that perhaps Schmidt might leave when he leaves as well at the end of this World Cup over the last we certainly had intimated that you know that might not be the case so it looks like Scott Robertson will be allowed to pick his own team no details on that so that's pure speculation at this stage um, that I've seen so far but uh, New Zealand are back with Scott Robertson I was surprised to see the last time this sort of came up a few weeks back about the speculation about the job that Joe was so far down the list there was um, Scott Robertson obviously was there Leon McDonald I think was ahead of him in the uh, in the betting, betting yeah um so I don't know, because there was definitely quotes from him recently saying that he he had said pre, not that long ago, listen, I don't really want to, you know, family, a lot of family stuff going on. I don't really want to get back to that level of coaching just yet. Um, but then there was something more recently saying, well, if it was to come up, I mean, what Kiwi is going to turn on the opportunity to coach the All Blacks? Um, but I, I, I presume it's the thing that most New Zealanders have been hanging out for for years. It's Scott Robertson. It. Yeah. Yeah. Seems to be like uh, everybody seems to love him. His team seems to play amazing rugby, and it's not great for the rest of the world. Would you be rather? Would you rather like uh, take on a Foster coached New Zealand at the World Cup or a uh, Razor coached? I know the answer. That I, I know my answer. Yeah, but uh, would you rather take on a Foster coached at the World Cup or a Joe Schmidt coached at the World Cup? Foster is the my preference of all of them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely wouldn't want Joe Schmidt at this World Cup, and even his imprints getting more and more into it like um, you know that attention to detail uh, which might be able to transform a team of very talented players like uh, we can we can talk about the Joe Schmidt versus Andy Farrell thing a little bit later on in the show but it certainly feels to me like there's no way that we will be playing the rugby that we are now if Joe Schmidt was still there mm-hmm. and that um, we needed Andy Farrell we absolutely needed Andy Farrell and I also I don't buy that it was just a linear thing because if it was just linear he was just he was just building on immediately what Schmidt had done then why did it take a year and a half for everything to click for them I think that he is his own man and they are their, this is their own thing and they had to go back to to the very start to allow players like Andrew Porter to reach his full potential um, and uh, yeah we're going to talk about Porter a little bit later on as well so I don't know We we didn't know we needed Farrell was a thing at the time right like we definitely his, the current history is not reflecting extremely warmly on Schmidt. They're like, okay, people kind of forget the success that he brought. I mean, look what he did with Leinster. You know, like all this stuff that has happened under the Joe Schmidt era, it's been slightly sort of um, washed in a slightly different colour, let's say. Well, I, I think that um, I think that the hagiography and the mythology around Joe Schmidt got too high. 
Like, mm. uh, he came into a Leinster side that had already won a European Cup under Michael Cech. He came into an Ireland side that had already won a Grand Slam under Declan Kidney and reached new levels with those teams. But he isn't the, the, the starter of that story and he's not the end of that story. Whereas actually, at the time, if you were to read, like, the... The stuff was like, oh, this is absolutely incredible. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened. He is, he's a genius and he obviously is a coaching genius, but I'm not sure that necessarily he created the environment that the uh, team has now where they're all able to get better and they all feel like they're, um, you know, like it was a very small squad. No one ever kind of came in and seemed to get particularly better when they reached the Ireland setup the way that like you can point several players who were subs in, at their club team who like Gibson Park for example like the transformation of Gibson Park into one of the best scrum halves in the world like he wasn't getting he's not first choice for Leinster and then they're like yeah. you're going to come in and you're going to join our team and you can do something that we see like that I, maybe I'm wrong and maybe someone's going to point out examples where Schmidt was able to do that and, and pick players but it, it um, anyway look everybody knows the difference in the, in the style and the approach at this stage and, and, and I don't mean to diminish the career that Schmidt had but like we got beaten in a World Cup by Argentina in a quarter final, and got beaten by Japan and the All Blacks in another World Cup, and um, so his record's not that much better than Kidneys. There's an extra couple of um, championships in there, but it's not like it's a complete outlier. And then Andy Farrell is just kind of stepped down. It's actually you'd have to say we're building. Like yeah. Farrell is now ascending to a higher height, and the big test is the World Cup. If we go out in the group stages in the World Cup, then it's just the same as everything else. So. I find it interesting that Farrell must have been... So, like, Farrell, the uh, the all-infamous, the mood in the camp, Ger, the mood in the camp, our old friend, the mood in the camp. Um, you better explain to people why you hate that. The mood in the camp is just like, if, you know, people in... Uh, what, what is the mood ju- in the camp? Journalism school, 101 needs to be, when you find yourself at a press conference or in some sort of an interview with a sports person, don't ask them how the mood in the camp is. I mean, unless there's been, like, big reports that the mood in the camp is not good. Which it seems like, in, in a nice segue, that in um, Schmidt's time, it wasn't all that great. But in the Farrell era, it does appear as if, like, he must have been sitting there for the four or five years under Schmidt going... Oh, this! I, if I was to get, I must do this differently, right? Like, because it's there, there's a different philosophical approach here in terms of the style of play and the mood. Our old friend, the mood in the camp. Has, you know, has this uh, has this perhaps made you revisit your uh, hatred of the question? When actually, if if they would actually tell you the truth, well, do you know what? We feel a little bit constrained. We feel like we're under pressure the whole time. Whereas these lads are like, actually, uh, Andy Farrell knows the name of my kids. Do, do you know? Yeah, not that but, Schmidt didn't, but like you know, yeah, he seems a, to. The, the question specifically is like a bland question that yeah. always deserves a bland answer and specifically came up at a press conference with a uh, an Ireland player some years ago where there was an interesting line of questioning about um, doping in, in sport and it was getting very interesting and one person in the uh, room was not all that interested in the way the question was going and said, oh, X, whatever about that, how's the mood in the camp? <laughs> which pretty good with like <laughs> a, a half a vein of journalism in the room just exhaled and uh, packed up their laptop is your disdain for it because there's so little you can do with that question it's just it's a nonsense question well who's going to tell you the truth the mood in the camp it's We're like all pissed it's, off at each other you're We've, probably hoping for that 1% chance that uh, the body language betrays the words but then no, not with that question and also I mean, as far as I know you were working in radio at the time so the body language thing is, is, is non-transmissible yeah then I've got nothing for you because then they're not going to say anything. on the body language. That's feel to me since Saturday particularly that the, the Joe Schmidt has been uh, torn up, isn't it? And, you know, 
God, that wasn't that great at all. I and he really I, ruined us. I actually think it's the opposite. Which is crazy. I think, well, it's not, it's, I, I mean, the, the truth is obviously in between, right? The truth is that we underperformed at the key moments and potentially because of some blind spots that the head coach had. Yeah. You'd have to say that the, the, the squad, the talent of the squad that went to the World Cup uh, four years ago was, was excellent and should have done better than it did. But, but we failed to beat... A Japan side who were good, but we hadn't done we hadn't done enough work. It does feel we hadn't considered no, them as a potential uh, team that was going to beat us, and that's on the head coach. Yeah, but it feels that even as I'm saying, the last couple of days that because of the World Cup in 2019, it that tarnished everything that happened before that. But like you forget that Schmidt under this, you know, Jacob Stockdale inspired night against New Zealand and the 2018 Six Nations, and he was on a late show, and people were saying this is like Joe Schmidt's the best yeah. sports coach in Irish sporting history, and we're here we are five years later being like. Well, that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a damp era, wasn't it? And but was now that, we actually have a proper manager in place. Was was that That's correct? What it feels like was it correct that he was the best uh, at, at that, that time, time? It probably was. No, it wasn't though. This is my point. Well, like, well, he was achieving. He had achieved things uh, with Leinster in Ireland that no other coach, mostly, um, was achieving. That was the thing. And like the quality of rugby, we were willing to forgive the. It was like an anti Stephen Kenny move. We were like willing to forgive the. Uh, we weren't really overly aware, but the the quality of the play was obviously not particularly good. But I think, like in terms of you know, we talk about the sort of changing of a narrative of a head coach like that. So you have all the little bits of stories that start to come out, like you know. So you remember the Scotland thing from what year was that? Twenty seventeen, whatever year it was, when we went over there and the bus got a little bit delayed going to the stadium, and everybody was up in arms about it. And then you had. Like, was it Jack Conan out after the Scotland game this year? And we were saying, you know, if no matter what happens, if we have to get off the bus just before the whistle goes, then we'll be prepared to do that. So you've this, that helps feed a changing narrative of, you know, that was fine, that was grand, and that was of its time. Yeah. But I mean, this stuff now, this, this is where it's at. Uh, yeah, and so you you think that's managed or or not true? Because it feels to me like that. that oh no, that I, do, is, I think it's totally true. And I think that's the that's the point here is that like it was an incorrect analysis of the point that he's the greatest coach of all time. I'm not diminishing he did well, but but certainly we can retrospectively go there were issues there. Um, yeah, but like now, the, no, the level of control that he sought and brought into the team yeah. worked to a point, but then stopped working, and that's like that's not like post fact. Um, that's not just post-fact rationalisation. That's like, we can diagnose that now. And what we're seeing is we hope... And here's the thing. This team might go out in the quarterfinals, but if they die with their boots on in a game where they've actually lived up to their potential and the opposition is world-class, that's completely different from going out against New Zealand last time where it was over by 20 minutes in and we shouldn't even have been in that game because we should have beaten Japan in the first place and taken the alternative route to the semi-final. Um, oh, it could totally go like... Belly up first in France is no question about it, and I mean, I don't, it's it is an interesting point. Will we at that point go? Well, we had the Grand Slam and things are developing, and we were very unlucky because some of the key pin players got injured, and you know, even with the extended squad and the development we had this year, we've got the worst draws conspiring had. against us. So yeah, exactly. So there's a ready-made narrative, is what I'm saying. Yeah, if uh, things go to pot. Yeah, but I mean, I'd still be, I'd still need to take to the bed for. A I actually, months. and I would disagree with you, Colin. I think that um, there's been a lot of people saying that this is Joe Schmidt's team, and Andy Farrell just just tweaked a few little things, and uh, I've, that's what I've basically taken from the coverage that I've seen, and I think that's wrong. I think that actually there's a clear delineation and demarcation rather between uh, what we're doing now and what we did then, and I see much more room for growth in this team than I did at that stage. Anyway, yeah, well, I feel a lot of the coverage has been that. Um I mean, Joe Schmidt was really a control freak and it didn't help 
the individualism of any players or any creativity and a bit like Pep Guardiola at his worst with Manchester City and Andy Farrell is you know he allows players to be himself so the Mac Hansen example would Schmidt have allowed Hansen back on media duty after his comments about England who knows maybe that's probably overblown as well in itself but there is a kind of revisionism I feel about Schmidt during this Six Nations I would say the exact opposite to you Jared that it feels like if you didn't watch Schmidt's Ireland you would say who was this schmuck almost because but, of sorry, what he did at the World second. Cup and, and, and are you saying the analysis that you started at the, that bit there is wrong what do you mean you said you, you used the word control freak do you think that that's wrong yeah because I think but is it you not have exactly... to go back to 2018 and the, what he achieved with that side and like Jerry Thorney made the point last night in Monday Night Rugby and you could disagree with this that Schmidt essentially you know, taught Ireland how to win or sorry I think Thorney was quoting and, and there, to an extent that was true because the New Zealand we not win a Grand Slam did, did, uh, yeah, I, but did, it, I, did I imagine Ron Nogara kicking a drop goal to win a Grand <laughs> Slam like a Grand Slam which, yeah. which happened before do you know what I mean like they, this is like history starting in 1992 for football it didn't like it's a continuum but I think you have to separate I, I, the results which were exceptional mostly uh, from the style of play and the way we found our way playing that style of play because there was definitely I mean um, there was a lot there was phraseology around the the camp that was used about like how stringent a camp a tight a camp he was running yeah. it didn't feel like particularly I, I don't is this important but it didn't feel like it was a particularly fun place to be for the players. But that's it, the, not in the pit of your stomach driving down Carton House that, yeah. that story's come out in recent weeks. Like, I, I guess, I, I don't know what you're saying, Colin. I don't know, uh, people, people remember how you made them feel and it feels like with the Andy Farrell era that everyone's having a much better time. So look, I'll put it to you like this. Say the World Cup's a disaster again and it's another quarter-final exit. Well, I wonder what the, if it's what disaster, the reaction's going to be yeah, to Farrell. Yeah, look, okay. and there'll, be a, there'll be a massive backlash. There, of course massive. there will be a massive backlash. But do, do, are you saying you don't think he was a control freak? Uh, I don't think he was a control freak in terms of a negative impact for the vast majority of his squad, or sorry, his time with Ireland, because you look at the success just before that World Cup, or just before the 2019 Six Nations, that first game against England in Dublin, where England came to down and won by 13 points I think up to that point everything that Schmidt was putting in place was a structure that was a winning formula and for me the interesting change in the analysis of it was he was probably doing the exact same thing and then that turned into a negative and it was because of the results so the narrative completely changed as a result because of the results and it was then it was introspection about or oh, maybe the fact that he does, doesn't allow his players to think creatively is actually a negative even though what the previous examples we've seen is that that formula had worked brilliantly for this Irish side. And to, I think that's slightly unfair. It didn't work brilliantly though. It worked to a certain, it worked to a certain point and then stopped working. Well, like, were you saying in you know, 20, it, the, the peak of the success? But the, the peak of the success of was a, yeah, well, he didn't build enough depth ahead of the World Cup where we end up being beaten by Argentina. I've definitely heard people who know way more about rugby than me say Argentina were going to win that game anyway because they're attacking with outside. I know Brian O'Driscoll said that um, Payne was injured and so therefore the defence out wide would have been better if he'd been playing. I like it's, we, I'd love if AI could play that game where we have our full team and we model it out and a million times we play the game we see how many times mm. that Argentina team win, us, uh, win that game and who knows what would have happened after that but um, there was no strength in depth that they hadn't been and then they spent the next couple of years trying to build some strength and depth and then at the last minutes they're like okay we don't have any and Joey Carberry plays through injury and then is unavailable for the game against Japan and like um, yeah like I, I, the other thing is that when 
when a camp is as tight as that one was, remember the teams the teams wouldn't be um, released to the, the press. There was an investigation at one stage because a team had got out. I don't know if like somebody had told their mum that they were in the team, and the mum had told somebody, and then all of a sudden this is a massive. There was an incident with a with a, a room key card that became a big deal because somebody had been found. Uh, one had been somebody found. Had lost their key, yeah. And it was like a bad attention to detail. Like all of the stories, these like this isn't post fact. This uh, this you were hearing these stories. You're talking about the the parody that was going around about the camp, mm. like. But I think so. So it's. I don't think it's in question that there was a controlled. It was a controlled environment. But I think Schmidt was doing that very deliberately. He didn't wander into that. It wasn't against his personality. This was absolutely by design. He went in and he looked at the, some of his parts and he thought, this is the way I need to play it. And I mean, even listen to that. It might have been Donald Lennon on the TV last night talking about how Andy Farrell uh, devolves the power base even within his own team in terms of Mike Cat and Simon Easterby and Paul O'Connell that he's saying to them on a Monday, here, all this went wrong at the weekend. What are you going to do about it? Whereas, like, I don't think... And the evidence nearly come full circle to the point I made earlier on about Farrell. Like, um, the evidence of what was going on previously wasn't that. It was like it was like a mad genius in the tower. Sort exactly. Of, like, I sat up all night coming up with these three plays. If we do these three plays, we're yeah. going to win the game. And they do do those three plays and they do win the game. But then eventually, like over a period of time, that wears off. Anyway, we've gone way over in this. 7.55 this morning. The New Ireland jersey was released yesterday to, it's fair to say, um, some of the most uh, spectacular pushback from football fans I've seen ever even I don't know maybe maybe it was just on the social media accounts that I was looking at but people did not like the New Ireland jersey I like it like is that outrageous I mean I'm not offended I'm certainly not so offended by the jersey that I get really irate about it I think it's nice like it's a throwback uh, honestly the first thing I thought when I saw it was Paul McGrath that's not a bad first image to get in your head when you see a jersey for the first time it is a bit of a throwback so I like it. I don't like. I don't particularly like the Castore, um, Castor, Castore, uh, like Nike, yeah, logo. Not crazy about that. So I don't know. Um, that might be just whatever. But there's not much they can do about that. At the same time, um, I like it. The only thing I would change about it is I like the I like the collar. That's definitely a throwback to my favorite jersey of all time. As I've said on this show before, the uh, '88 jersey with the perforation around the around the. Um, Around the arm, beautiful, beautiful kit. I I, I see Mark McCadden in the uh, uh, Star this morning has done up like a top ten jerseys of all time, and he is Italian ninety on it, which I'm not mad about because the little the detail in the jersey, this one here with the little. Sort uh, of, um, I never liked that. I'm not like mad the about the little detail no. which we've had on the previous jersey just gone. I like that sort of plain, and I know there's a few stripes in this. I like that, but I like the collar. The only thing I would change about it is it's like it seems to be like a green and orange detail on it. I would scrap that and go full throwback and just make that fully orange. And for me, that wouldn't be far off. There's, there's no orange in the kit at all, is there? Beautiful. It's it's a green and orange trim. All right. I would have like just fully orange. Uh, I like it. I did see Rangers was uh, trending on Twitter yesterday when the kit came out because apparently it's a similar template, if not the yeah. same, mm. to the Rangers third jersey. I'm like, I don't really care about that. Who cares? When I no. saw it, I thought uh, Billy Bingham's Northern Ireland side 1993 qualifier against the Republic of Ireland for USA 94, that era of Northern Ireland jersey, the slightly different shades of green and the stripe, the very, very subtle stripe. That was my first thought. That's, not a, that's not as good a first thought as, uh, that was, as honestly, Paul McGrath. I'd be like... This is very so, similar. Okay. I, I presume you don't like it then, or do you? Um, are you a big fan of the Northern Ireland jersey? <laughs> I'm not... Um, not, not a huge fan of it. I, I was in but the I office. the last I, Ireland jersey I liked. I was Probably in the office yesterday, Ger, and I dropped that into uh, our team's channel. 
and the office was silent and all I heard was hmm in a Cork accent coming from the <laughs> middle of the room yeah yeah that's probably about fair I'll probably lean on the just lean on the side of being not mad about it it's a uh, retail they're 65 euros well the price of jerseys of course is oh, all over the conversation but. and um, I don't think I'd buy it put it that way and actually, I saw the full kit in action too. So, have you seen the shorts and socks? Yeah, well? not mad about either of those. Not I'd say the now. shamrock and the socks now would be. The uh, further south you go, that. the worse it gets. Yeah, that's with that kit. <laughs> but, but uh, I don't know. It's certainly not one to be. I mean, the Rangers and Northern Ireland stuff. I, I think you're reaching uh, for some negative side to it there. Okay, uh, can we can we talk about the? So we've been on board the hype train for Evan Ferguson slash excitement train. We we want to dial that back a little bit from the hype. It's like, a, and um, we had Jasmine Bab on the show. I think two or three months ago, and she like did a deep dive on the uh, stats to see how well he was performing versus other benchmarks. And um, there's a, a popular hundred thousand followed account on yeah, EBL yeah Twitter at EBL 2017 Evan Ferguson combines the best of Erling Haaland and Wayne Rooney and rolls them into one is the opening line <laughs> you have me there lads you have me there to Evan Ferguson combines I'm like oh I wonder what the rest of this is and that's a, that's an actual statement and then there's a thread of um, basically nothing just like clips of him saying this guy's good he's very good mm. no he's very good in different ways and uh, I, you know I for one am here for the uh, 25 tweet threads about how good Evan Ferguson is and it's basically every good moment that he's had in every game and I'm like yeah this is I'm pretty excited so when when it's going to be France 3-0 now are we is that what's going to happen I, you know I was looking at that link this morning and sort of thinking I was waiting for the from this uh, anal- an- analysis account which it appears to be to be all these like numbers and like stats to back up the fact that like you know that rather lofty statement it must be said uh, but there's a lot of writing as you probably tend to get like a lot of feature think pieces in a week like this um, where the club action is not a huge amount of club games um, but Chris Sutton is writing, writing about him in uh, one of the papers this morning very compl- the mail the mail of a full page of, of love I, I'd love yeah. to see if this is like the English mail as well as the Irish mail um, but the Chris Sutton piece is certainly carrying both is. papers you'd assume is it yeah it feels like it is uh, could be wrong about that feels like it is um, but yeah very very complimentary stuff about him I can't find it there now that it's yeah. Yeah. Very complimentary about it, but do, does sort of you're, you're kind of like the one thing we're in the absence of, and we'll hopefully get to this part right over the next few days is like seeing him in that beautiful green shirt and seeing how he goes in an Irish system and seeing how he goes without the yeah, likes of you know the quality players that he has around him at Brighton um, and you know a manager that uh, different manager who feels like the right manager at the right place for Ferguson. So that we're in the absence of that little bit at the minute and and how the Irish style suits him. Reading that thread, I'm like, ah, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what we play. Play whatever we want to play. Just get the ball up to him and we'd be great. Who's Ireland's Matoma? That's, yeah, that's exactly. what we need to find, you know, because he has a great partnership with uh, with Matoma. Well, even McAllister, Saicedo, like They're not bad. They're not but, bad. Um, you know, it, yeah, you would certainly say that Brighton are uh, better than Ireland at the moment. The best thing you can say about Ferguson is, objectively, it is starting to become hard to ignore him. He's the top-scoring teenager in the Premier League and I know it was Grimsby Town in the FA Cup and Brighton were going to win uh, very early on uh, after their early goal. But that touch on his chest and cushioned valley finished for his first goal of the day Evan Ferguson beautiful yeah we said this on the show yesterday beautiful. we did like we were getting carried away and we're getting carried away again today and we're going to c- we continue will. to get carried away there's one in the middle of this if you want a technical number 9 Ferguson is your man if you want a ruthless number 9 Ferguson is your man if you want a number 9 who scores tap-ins and headers thanks to his physicality and positional discipline if you want an outlet a hard worker Ferguson is your man 
It uh, does, um, like, you know, the word of caution here. The of first, <laughs> first time <laughs> that I saw him score a goal in the Premier League was on uh, a Twitter feed where somebody clipped a goal from, I don't know what language it was, but they were just repeating the words, Ferguson! Yeah. Ferguson! And I was like, this this sound is hopefully the new soundtrack to my life. Messi, Messi, it'll be Messi, Messi, Ferguson, Ferguson. Um, you know, like, you start into conversations about, like, you know, how many goals, you know, I was starting to think, think uh, you know but in a Robbie Keane context about the interviews that have been done about him now that'll be replayed in 20 years time when he scored 150 goals for Ireland and you know what what is the ceiling for this guy you know what club is he what club is this guy going to end up at will it be Barcelona or Real Madrid it's just it's very hard to pick between them uh, you know uh, I suppose I'm all, I'm, all of this is leading to uh, before the YouTube commenters take into me um, calm down, calm down. There probably does need to be a little bit of that. It seems like he has like an unbelievable circle around him. Obviously, his dad has been there and done that, and that helps. But the circle around him is as important as anything in terms of trying to manage him. But like, if he goes out, and we, you know, as in the taxi on the way in here, as my mind started to drift, as I uh, stared out at the sort of bleary-eyed out through the streetlights on the way into work this morning. And my mind started to dream forward as to how many goals we were going to beat France by. And what, right when you were coming in, what, what type? Uh, what type of goal? What type of goals he was going to score? It was going to be a mix of a little bit of everything, you know. And then at some point you're like, okay, well, I just maybe should just be a little bit cautious about all this. I hope, hope for sure, hope for That's sure. But thing. like, you know, because like the, the only difficulty is with getting carried away with it all is right that he doesn't score against Latvia and he doesn't score against France, and he only has an average game. And then suddenly it's like, well, okay, Adrian, first, remember your man. Get Ida back in the team. Three minutes past eight this morning. Uh, speaking of hope, what should our hopes be for the Irish rugby team? I'm delighted to say Matt Williams is with us. Matt, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Joe. Very good, thank you. Uh, I, I think if you've heard the last 60 seconds, you're, you're um, aware that we're, we're prone sometimes to getting carried away on this programme about our hopes. Um, but for the first time in a long time, maybe the right thing to do is to lean into our hopes and belief. And with this Irish rugby team in particular, the style of play is the thing that gives us the, the most comfort and most excitement. Well, it's fantastic to watch. It's just been an amazing two years, really. Uh, probably a bit less, probably, probably 18 months, to be fair, since the, the the England game two years ago during COVID at the Abuba, we saw a, a glimmer of change and, and Ireland won that day and probably saved uh, Eddie Farrell's career. And across that summer... There was some form of epiphany within the coaching staff, brought Paul O'Connell in, and they started playing uh, a type of rugby that is modelled on Leinster that I fully support. I don't say that at, at, to, to give Leinster credit. I'd say it because it it's a, become a national philosophy. We saw the under-20s win a Grand Slam on Sunday playing the same style of rugby. If you watch the... The, uh, the the schools, the looting schools players playing the same grand, brand of rugby. So we've got this philosophy of how to play the game that's starting at schools and juniors, moving through our academies, our under-20s, our, our provinces are playing very similar with Leinster looting the way on that and our national team is doing it. It's sexy, it's it's entertaining, it's great to watch. It must be a joy to play because you can see the smile on the guys' faces and it's winning rugby. Uh, it, it, it is fantastic. And, and in your hope, and I, I share your hope, for this World Cup more than any other that I've been involved with in Ireland for the last quarter of a century because they've done the preparation 18 months out. They have done the preparation. They've got a, they've got depth in their squad. Uh, Farrell has been brave enough to blood players uh, when other players are injured, with, and those players have really stepped up to the mark, and, and they've beaten everyone. 
So this isn't based on hope. So, I, you know, Bob, Bob Hope, my father used to say, you know, that's Bob Hope's brother, which is no hope. You know, you, you can't base a plan on hope. You've got to base it on evidence. And the evidence we've got is overwhelming. They've beaten everyone. They've beaten Australia. They've beaten New Zealand, South Africa. And they've beaten all the Six Nations teams, beaten Argentina. So everyone that we, we will face uh, at the World Cup, they've beaten in the last 18 months. That That is um, a, a, really, a plan based on really solid foundations. Um, you, you bring up the, the Leinster importance here, right? And I just, I just want to tease this out a little bit because there's been a bit of a, a backlash um, from various people suggesting that we need more representation from other provinces on the team for the team to fully land with the um, with the fan base. Uh, I think, uh, okay, f- if people feel how they feel, right? That's the first thing. And so you're entitled to feel whatever you think. I, I do think that there's a, a rationale behind it when you consider that uh, Leinster went and first got Graham Henry to come and have a look at their coaching setup, and then they got uh, Stuart Lancaster in. At the same time, Munster, through the auspices of the IRFU, decided that they were going to go the South African route, which has no bearing on, on how we play at international level. And so if there's a disconnect between the number of players coming through at Munster, uh, I, would, I would argue that it's a direct result because they had their coaching ticket wrong. They've improved things. More players are coming through. More players look like they'll be able to make the step up. I've vastly oversimplified it for the sake of brevity this morning. But is there something in that that actually Munster went, got a bit lost with, their, with the, the leader of their organisation and now they found, they're finding their way back so we should expect more Munster players to be ready to play for Ireland over the next few years? I think there is uh, validity to your argument, Joe. Yeah, and Munster were lost, uh, for sure. There's no two ways about that. And they were playing a brand of rugby that wasn't linked to the national team, uh, in my opinion. Uh, look, the national team is a meritocracy 100%. When you start looking at where people are playing their provincial rugby and and that influences your decisions, you will fail and fail spectacularly. It it, it cannot come, it cannot be a discussion. So, so for example, Jamison Gibson Park and James Lowe uh, born in New New Zealand, did their rugby training in New Zealand. They're they're qualified by uh, the residency rule. Now, we can argue against the residency rule, I, I, it's something I don't like, but it, it's there, and they are picking them. That, that's got to be selected on who, on who, on how they're playing, not who they are. So I completely reject that. My answer to Munster and everyone else, all Leinster. Remember, this is going to turn. This is going to turn in a few years. Leinster will not stay where they are. They just can't. It's just that sport. You don't have a dynasty that lasts a hundred years. They all, they all come up and down. When Leo goes, we don't know what's going to happen uh, after that. But the academy system and the school system at Leinster is just pumping out really high-quality kids. You could see that on the weekend in the under-20s. That was dominated by kids, uh, by young men coming from Leinster. So, you know, the, to, to me, the challenge is up to the other provinces. Lift your game. Get your act together. Produce great players. Play great rugby and you'll get picked. It's simple. It's a meritocracy. And until they do that, you pick the best players. And until like, – like we, then we've got to spin this back a bit. Um, if, if to get to some really it's, – it's, it's a painful conversation for Munster and the other provinces. I understand it. And I get accused of being biased because I coached Leinster. I also coached Ulster. 
and I coached Island A. And at Island A, we were from everywhere. So I, I, all I want to see is Island win. That's it. That's my motivation. I want to see Island win. Leinster are at the top of Europe. Now, people, they got beaten in the final. They did. But they're at the top of Europe and constantly at the top of Europe with 21 of their 23 players in Europe being born in the province. Now, there is no other organisation on the planet doing that, right? There is no one else. It's an astonishing uh, achievement of what Leinster are doing to be at the top of their of their uh, international competition, like this, like Super Rugby, with with all those players, that number of players born in your province. There's no one in Australia doing it, uh, and there's no one in New Zealand doing it because they mix their provinces up. They have a, a almost a draft system. Now, the fact that Leinster are doing that tells you they're doing something right. They're, they're, the style of rugby is unique. It's entertaining. It's brilliant. And and Farrell, to his undying credit, has said, "I'm going to I'm going to adopt that. I'm going to adopt that style." And even adopting the plays, adopting the course, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is really smart coaching. And what have we seen since that time? We've seen nothing but great success, nothing but great success. So anyone that, that gets in there and says, oh, well, I'm disappointed there's not enough Connor or Ulster or Munster boys in there, you know, that, if we follow that, that thinking, we'll fail. And do you want Ireland to fail because of that? We're Irish. You're not Munster. Once the green jersey comes on, the provinces dissolve. And, and that's the way you've got to look at it. I've got one last one on this before we um, move on. Um, the the one of the counter one of the it's not even a counter argument. One of the the points that gets made is that um, Leinster and the IRFU. I think Gordon Darcy said that they were um, the schools have uh, Leinster and the IRFU have no real influence over the schools because the schools funding comes from parents of the schools and the schools themselves in Leinster, and that's the main bulk supplier for. Uh, the Leinster Academy and obviously Leinster are doing great work to try and broaden the players who come through the academy and they're doing much better at that. Uh, is there a case for the IRFU funding schools in Connacht and Ulster and in Munster to a similar level to what the schools are being funded? I guess if we if we think that that pathway is working and it clearly is as you point out in Leinster to model that again to interfere in the process a little bit in Munster and Connacht to try and get those schools to a similar level of funding, which is obviously very difficult because, you know, those schools don't really uh, reveal exactly how much money they have. But certainly, you, you, you know, you could take a fairly educated guess about how many coaches they have, how many certain condition people they have, what access they have to facilities and all that kind of stuff and say, OK, we're going to m- make four schools in Munster be the same and two schools in Connacht be the same. And we're just going to fund those directly and like uh, hope that we get the payback in years to come. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> I think we, if, if we address one, the first issue, everyone in Ireland thinks that it's unique, you know, the school system here. It's not. It's exactly the same in Australia. It's exactly the same in New Zealand. New Zealand is worse. New Zealand, the school board competitions fund everything, and they put out scholarships. They bring kids in from the Polynesian Islands. That, you know, like it, it, to, to think that this school system here is unique is wrong. South Africa is almost identical. The only place that I know of that doesn't have it of the leading countries is France, where there's no sport in schools. It's totally driven by the clubs. So it is not a unique system. A, B, uh, yes, by all means, funded. But, the, the, you know, if you go to a principal and, and say, oh, we're the IRFU, uh, we want to give you money for your rugby program, quite often the principals will say, we're independent, we don't want anything to do with you. And I have seen that firsthand in Australia, and I've seen it firsthand in Ireland. Um, that comes from a drive and determination of the leadership in the school. 
if it was accepted, absolutely give the give the schools as much as they want, as much as they'll take. Give them and and here is what you give them: you give them education, you give them you educate their coaches, you supply coaches, you edu- educate their strength and conditioning staff, give them equipment, all that sort of stuff. Absolutely, a hundred percent. But again, um, the bubble that is Irish rugby. You know, you're in you're in uh, fantasy land, thinking that the the school system in Ireland is unique. It is not, and think that the money in the school system in Ireland is unique. It is not. It is exactly the same in Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand because I've been in those systems and seen it firsthand. But let me put one more thing. It is a fabulous system. So now we've got some. Here's the other thing, Joe. I think that we've we've left out. There is competition, and Andy Farrell has made competition within that squad. But now you've got competition within the provinces. And the, if the other provinces are feeling left out and behind, what do you do? You get off your backside and you start working to beat Leinster. So that's what we've got to have in competition. We've got to have that competition in the schools as well. The other schools, province, provincial schools are behind, get your act together, start working, get competitive and go for it. And look for funding. If that's what you need, absolutely. Take it. Search for it. I used to only wear a tie when I was coaching when I was after funding. I put a coat and tie on and I go after funding. Money is the root of all evil and the base of all progress. So if you have to get money to get forward, get off your ass and go and get it. But that's not the, to me, that's not the answer right now. It, it may be in certain schools. The answer is the technical and tactical aspect of what's being coached in the provinces outside of Leinster. And that, that it, to me, is, is the core area of, of where they're behind. Matt, I just have two questions, it, both sort of leading into the World Cup, particularly and, and around that tactical and, and technical side as well. Uh, post Six Nations and obviously the conversation now starts to turn about how uh, we're going to win the World Cup. Uh, the subtleties of, of the game plan that we've had over the course of Six Nations and the execution of it, the little delayed passes, the use of the blind side, all those little things that countries from around the world are going to be looking at now and jotting, that the best coach is going to be jotting those down. Um can we refresh that playbook? Is that our, is that the game plan now that comes into the World Cup, or how concerned would you be about how much of our hand we've shown? Um, I don't think there's anyone around the world that's um, playing the two of two of clubs at the moment. Everyone's playing playing their best hand. Um, I wouldn't be that concerned because the the beauty of this team uh, and the, what the way Farrell's done this, and particularly in bringing in Paul O'Connell, is they can maul very well. They've got a great kicking game. They've got a, a very, <clears throat> very good um, uh, kicking percentage for penalties. They their set play is is absolutely top shelf. They can score from set plays, and they can vary their attack so much that you you really don't know what they're going to do. Like you can't guarantee. So they went back on the short side there. They did that for a reason because they saw a weakness in the English defence. So if you watch the English defence, I'll come back a bit. The theory on hitting England midfield and going back to short side has been around for 30 years, right? That that has always – because England want to take you on. They want a pitch battle, right? So don't give, give – and the number one, number one philosophy on tactics, give the opposition what they don't want. What do they want us to do? Well, let's not do that. Let's, what, do they want, what do they not want us to do? England never want you to come at them down the short side. They just don't because their defensive system – and this year, if you watch the first tackle – Four players go around, keep going. We, we, we call it on the keep go around the same way. So they're short on the blind side the whole time. 
Jamie George was, has been left on the blind side of the whole tournament. They got their, their defensive system has been shocking all tournament, and they'd been offside all tournament, I might add, and they were offside again on, on uh, Saturday night and weren't penalised. So Ireland came back to short side on Saturday because they saw a weakness in the opposition. Ireland, Sheehan's first try, that they scored that because they saw a weakness in the set play defence. So that what Ireland are doing is really smart. They're, they're identifying weaknesses and then they're going after them. What do they do against France from the from the restart? They did that beautiful move. They they saw a hole in the French defensive system off tackle one, off a dropout. Like it's so smart, Adrian. Like you know, you just gotta you just gotta applaud them. You, you, you know, you look back and go, wow, why'd they do that? And then when we go back after they do it and you see why they did it, you just go, really smart play. Mm. So they'll have some and, – and, and here, we, here we have to put in every defensive system ever invented, ever practiced has a weakness. There's no perfect defensive system. So why are they playing? Let's come back. Why are they playing the way they're playing? Because they're getting really fast ball, really LQB they call it, lightning quick ball. You get it at a ruck. You get your ruck speed down around a second, second and a half. Defences, rushing defence can't cope with that. It's not organised. Can't get back and forward fast enough. So why they're playing this really helter-skelter, it seems, type of game, and it's not helter-skelter, but a really rapid pace game, is to stop rushing defences. England play a rushing defence. England couldn't get their, their defence going well enough to do it. So that's the reason they're playing at this pace. So why France playing at pace? Why New Zealand, Australia, and now Argentina? Why are they all trying to play this high-pace game? because defensive systems can't cope with the pace. So I, I, I would counter what you're saying, um, um, which is a very valid argument, a very valid argument. I'm not dismissing the argument, but the counter argument is you, you don't know what tactic we're going to play on any given day. You don't know how we're going to do this. You don't know where we're going to attack. So, we, we, again, give me give me some proof. Okay, roll back. They did, the, they did their work on Vandermeer, that he's, a, he's an emu, not an eagle. What do I mean by that? He's fast on the ground, but he can't fly. Emus can't fly. So when they, they came on, as soon as Jamison Gibson Park came on, they had a box kick. And they box kicked right on to Vandermeer in the corner near the try line. It was a plan because we, 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 our winger was in place. Mac Hansen was in place to chase that ball. He should have been out in the open side off a line out. He wasn't. He was on the blind side. Hansen goes through. They know Vandermeer doesn't jump or can't jump for the ball and catch. He stays on the ground. What did what did what did he do? Hansen's about five inches shorter. Mm. He just jumps up, taps the ball back. Five phases later, we score a try. That's how smart they are. So you know, I, I and and let me come back another part. There is zero guarantees we're going to win the World Cup. They're in the shockingly hard half of the pool. The pool is the, the World Cup draw is ridiculously biased. And Ireland are on the tough side with South Africa, New Zealand, and France. If I got my Australian hat on, Australians have got they've got such an easy path to a semi-final. They've got Wales in their pool, England and Argentina on the other side. So their their quarter-final, if they can win their pool, their quarter-finals is much much easier than anything Ireland are going to produce to get to a semi-final. Now, once they get to a semi-final, it's a different kettle of fish. But Ireland to make the semi-final have a far harder path. So we haven't got any guarantees at the World Cup. But this is the most prepared, the best prepared Irish side in World Cup history. This is the best opportunity Ireland have as far as team preparation goes. And we're not basing this on hope like on past World Cups. 
I was actually saying the opposite. People didn't like me saying it. I think you've got no chance, guys. I was telling you the last one. You've got no chance. You're not anywhere near it. Oh, no, we got Joe. we got this. we got that. And you just, you just wasn't. You weren't prepared. World Cups are one 18 months out. And Ireland have got themselves uh, uh, now nine months out. But the Ireland started this 18 months ago. That's when this World Cup preparation really gets me excited. No guarantees, but they got a really, really good shot. And that is based on evidence, not on just hope. What were the warning signs 18 months out the last time or, or in the build-up to the last one that you were spotting, Matt, that, um, that made for uncomfortable listening to Irish people in the build-up four years ago? Uh, and eight years ago too, Drew, and 12 years ago. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> want to go back to 87? I talk to Willie Anderson about it all the time. Look, every World Cup, um, I, I think the Six Nations are, and ha- has a lot to do with it. There is that much pressure to win the Six Nations that they, they just don't blood people. Um, Joe took a tour group to Australia and they won the series and they, they put far too much emphasis on winning the series and not enough emphasis on developing players. Um, you know, I, I was I was working with Ian Madigan um, a couple of weeks ago, just a gentleman, lovely guy, fantastic rugby player. And when Ian came on at the, the, the World Cup, uh, when Johnny Sexton got injured two World Cups ago, Ian's a, it's a fabulous football, but he hadn't been given enough opportunities in a green jersey to be prepared for that, completely prepared for what was thrown at him. Paul O'Connell was injured. We hadn't prepared our, our backup players with enough time to be, to be ready. So the, the theory on World Cups is, you know, everyone in your squad has to have around 20 caps or between 20 and 30 caps if, if you, you know, you need that experience. It, the, the, the feeling is you're not comfortable at a national level till around your 10th to 15th cap. You, you know, the pace of the game is so different. The crowd is so much bigger. The noise, you can't communicate. There's all these other things. The build-up, the, the everything is different coming from provincial rugby, um, with the possible exception of playing in Heineken Cup finals. So, uh, and again, this this is what Ireland didn't do. What have they done this time? What has Farrell done this time? He's taken the development team to New Zealand. He's take, sent development teams to South Africa. He invited New Zealand over, and at times they've copped a, uh, a hiding. And that's what you've got to do with development teams. But it gives players opportunities. Uh, to fail and to learn. He's then, when when this Six Nations forced upon them in some ways, you've had Sexton out, you've had Furlong out, Burns been out, uh, Henshaw's been out, uh, Bundy was out for a while. So we've had to rely on on, on another group of, of players who have been magnificent and have delivered. So all of a sudden we've got depth charts, as we call it, in each position, where if Tom O'Toole comes on, before we would have been, oh, gee, can, can this guy do it? And, and Tom would be saying in his own head, because he's a human being, I don't know if I can do it. Tom O'Toole's back at his home tonight with his self-belief knowing, if I get that opportunity at the World Cup, I know I'm ready. I'm a, Now, what's Tom saying? I'm after Finley Beelham. I want Finley Beelham's place on the bench. We've got competition for each in each position. So all those factors have never been done in the past. And the second part is, Jer, they're playing a style of rugby that's successful. The day England beat Ireland in the first game at the Aviva in 2019, we were finished. And I said it at the time, we were finished. People had figured us out because it rushing defence, slow ruck ball brought rushing defence into play. And that day England rushed us off the park and we were rushed off the park for the rest of the year. 
So defence was dominating. That is not the case at the moment. So, and that the tactics that are successful at schoolboy and provincial are now successful at international level. New Zealand, France, and, and Australia and Argentina are copying those tactics, and they're having great, well, relative success with them. France, France in particular, scare me. Right, France are the one that they 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 scare me. They're 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 playing. I don't know if we've got time, but they overtrained, Galtier overtrained France for the first six weeks of the, of the Six Nations. That was pretty much known that he didn't taper for any game up to the Scotland game, that he pushed them at training, made them tired, wanted them for two going into games to test their mentality. After the Scotland game, they've rested, they've had some drinks, they've had a fun time, and look what they've done. They have been unbelievable. Unbelievable in uh, Twickenham and unbelievable again in, Par- in Paris. The, the, the two of the tries against against the uh, Welsh will go down as pretty much all-time classics. They're the ones that are going to be brought out 20 years in the in the future. They are just staggering tries, and and the one at the Aviva. France scare the scare the daylights out of me. I, I, I've got a lot of confidence about everyone else, but France in France, France are going to be at home for a year. <laughs> How good's that? They got every game at home for a year now. Like they are a great side, but Ireland have proved that they can step into the ring with any of the heavyweights, any of the heavyweights, and win. So it's a good spot. Uh, this is why us not winning the right to host this World Cup was actually, you know, kind of important in the end. But um, that's an entirely different kettle of fish. An entirely different set of rugby politics that maybe we won't get into this morning, Matt. Well, we can we can thank our Celtic cousins for all that. So let's repay the favour for the next ten years and come to the bottom of a ruck. <laughs> Absolutely, Matt. Good stuff. Thanks a million. See you guys. Good to talk to you. Cheers. It is um, the butterfly chaos theory where Scotland not voting for us. Imagine if the World Cup was in Ireland, there, right? Notwithstanding all the political blah 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 and the problems, games at Croke Park, um, games in Ravenhill. Games and redeveloped. I don't know, would there be some in the Gaelic grounds? And um, France would have to come to Ireland to play us. We'd be playing South Africa in Dublin. I'd still be very, very worried about France. I, he's, he's absolutely spot on. He's got good clarity around um, the various kettles of fish, uh, including the French one. And uh, I, I look at it, it is, it is a different ballgame when you're going to play them there. There's no question yeah. about it. Like it's, uh, yeah. But, you know, it's just a self-belief. I d- the one area that we'll get into, we've, uh, we have a few months to get into it uh, and on, but, like, it feels like the 33-man squad is going to come from the... You've had to play it in that Six Nations now to make the, 30, the 33-man squad. If, if uh, all of our second rows were to get injured, you can see that there's probably a pathway for some players to make yeah. it. But, like, um, if all of our full-backs were to get injured, you'd be like, no, they're going to find yeah. somebody who has play for us. Uh, like... Like we, we, you know, the pre Six Nations. Oh my God, Joey Carberry has been left out of the squad. I mean, when does that name last come up in a conversation about what Ireland are doing? And you have to assume that uh, sort of post Six Nations, he's thinking, well, that's you know, no matter what I do between now and then, this this goose is cooked. Uh, I brought that up with Quinny on Monday, and he was like, actually, just there's room there for like, um, so Ross Burns' grip on that spot isn't nailed down. He, you think now. He's obviously going to have a big opportunity yeah. against Ulster in Dublin in, is it two weeks? Mm. In the Champions Cup quarterfinal. And uh, because Sexton's injury, I think that's one of those opportunities that he's going to have to, to grab. Um, I, I'd say if uh, if Munster were to go and reach a final of a Heineken Cup off the back of brilliant out-half play from Joey Carberry, then he's straight back in. 
Do you know? Like, <sighs> wow. still because they know him really well. I look at it. It's it is an interesting conversation that has no exact a, answer to yeah. it. But uh, um, I, I I would lean on the side of he's. He's not going to make it. Uh, Michael wants to know what's the mood. One hundred percent. Like it's, yeah. it'd be a complete fluke this stage. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not saying that Munster are going to go and win the Heineken Cup. Uh, what's the mood in the OTB office like? Asked Michael. Oh, tense. Thanks for asking. A great question. Uh, yeah, uh, Schmidt's a great coach. Did an unbelievable job for Ireland, but he would be a disaster for New Zealand. Too restrictive, says Daniel Casey. I feel really bad for Joey Carby's a shifty lad. Definitely more of a Leinster player, and maybe could have been our best fullback. He was sent out to be a number two to Sexton. Obviously, it's backfired. I think Schmidt is a little more likely to become a technical director type role. I think his coaching style is wrong for current rugby rules, says Quirky, 1980. I'm not sure about restrictive, says Flying Hell, Fish, 99. Claremont and Leinster lit it up under him. Prior to Schmidt, the game plan was give the ball to Ferris or O'Brien. Uh, Colin McCarthy says, bit of Captain Hindsight going on here. Plenty of people in the media thought Joe Schmidt was the best thing since sliced bread for a long time. How many people predicted Farrell would get us to this level? Uh... Uh, okay whatever Schmidt gave every player in both club and country a belief that we could be competing with the best an invaluable foundation for our country says Quirky 1980 look those wins against New Zealand obviously another staging post along the way um, so for sure okay loads of people saying he wasn't a control freak etc it needed to be controlled to develop the players and the standard Dublin GA did exactly the same with Pat Gilroy and then Jim Gavin took it on I think Jim Gavin gave the players some certain freedom to play it as they saw it or certainly some players anyway it's 8.30 this morning time for to turn our attention to the unstoppable juggernaut that is Arsenal at the top of the uh, Premier League we're going to do that in just a minute if you have views on football we'd love to hear from you 87 9180 uh, we're back with Arse Blog's Andrew Mangan after these OTB AM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition available now Andrew Mangan of Arse Blog is with us Andrew good morning to you how are you I'm I'm well, thanks. How are you guys? What's the mood in the camp? It's pretty good, have to say. Uh, I was over for the game on on Sunday, and there's just an incredible uh, sense of optimism and belief uh, around the stadium before the game, after the game, and uh, not verging over into anything like arrogance, because I think people understand there's a, a long way to go still, ten games, and a lot to play for, but. You know, how could you not be in a good mood sitting eight points clear at the top of the Premier League table at this point of the season? It's such a weird season, too, with the World Cup break in the middle of it. So, um, like, I'm sure the level of excitement when the team started to play well was great. And I was like, oh, we, we could be a top four team. And then the World Cup happens and it's like, we're still top of the table and the run of fixtures isn't that bad. We, we could still be top at Easter. So I, at what point do you teeter from not arrogance but into a sense of belief that actually this this is the year where something magical is happening it's a really good question I think some of the big games this season have been a demonstration of the progress that Arsenal have made they beat Liverpool they beat Tottenham home and away they beat Manchester United at home you know the the results that in previous seasons might just have gone against Arsenal have gone with have gone with us and post World Cup. I think the the big worry was how how are we going to cope without Gabriel Jesus because he was so important and so transformative and was that injury going to have a significant effect on the team and its ability to get results? We were five points clear before Gabriel Jesus got injured. We were five points clear when Gabriel Jesus came back. So I think that sense that there is a, a perhaps more depth to the squad than people might have given Arsenal credit for was another big, uh, I guess, a positive a, a thing that makes you believe that perhaps this could happen this season. 
The transfer dealings have been absolutely brilliant, uh, particularly from the end of last season to this point. The two uh, Premier League winners who come in, Jesus, um, obviously, in, and Zinchenko, but then in the in the January window to pick up the players they did in the manner they did where they're kind of like uh, massively undervalued by their current club for whatever reason one's a falling out one's because there's six million players at Chelsea and for for those players to just add immediately options to the starting team it's very rare for that to happen in January yeah, because Arsenal were after Mikhailo Mudrik, as we know. I mean, it's possible they could have got him and he could be having the same kind of difficulty that he's having at Chelsea. I do think perhaps Chelsea being a bit of a basket case at the moment is playing a part in that. But certainly Trossard coming in and providing assists and giving more depth up front when Enkedia got injured, his contribution has been absolutely sensational, really. And I think uh, as well, Jorginho... Wouldn't have been everyone's favourite. Arsenal have done some deals with Chelsea in the past that haven't gone down particularly well. You wouldn't say those players are are favourites in any way, but he's come in and what he's allowed Thomas Partey to do is is just sort of sit out a couple of games and make sure that he's ready for for the big ones in the Premier League. And like for all that sort of one of the non-Hollywood names, Andrew and uh, Ben White, it almost sort of reminds me of the Johnny Sexton been left out of the Lions squad bit where it sort of has seemed to give him an unbelievable kick in his career. Um, and, you know, if he continues to play like he did against Palace at the weekend, um, this is a guy who's going to be in a lot of England squads to come. But being left out might be exactly what sort of Arsenal fans will uh, delight in over the next couple of months. I don't think Ben White is out of the England squad because of his quality as a, as a footballer. I think there's something else going on there. He's he's probably been the best English right back in the Premier League this season. And for a guy who played all of last season at centre half, it's been it's been amazing to watch how he has developed and that relationship he's got with Bukayo Saka on the right hand side. If you ask me this morning, am I grateful that he's out of the England squad? Absolutely. I don't want him anywhere near it. Um, I'm looking at Holland being taken out of the Norway squad right now and thinking. Arsenal could do with a bit of that, take Saka out, take Odegaard out if he can do it. But, you know, Ben White has been absolutely brilliant. Um, he's he's a sort of vindication of the transfer policy that Arsenal have undertaken in the last couple of years. There were a lot of eyebrows raised when Arsenal paid Brighton £50 million for him, sort of similar to the money they paid for Aaron Ramsdale. Nobody's batting an eyelid now. These two guys and, and others have been absolutely sensational. Uh, who's who's responsible for the, the transfer policy? You know, obviously, when when Liverpool won their title, they went and signed Allison and Van Dijk, and it was transformative. Arsenal's has been um, less two world class players immediately injected into the team, but it's been a series of really good bits of business done over a protracted period of time. Is there a similar style committee at Liverpool, or who has the the biggest influence? I think they had to take stock at, at one point because they'd done, you know, going back to Chelsea deals, they'd done a deal for Willian, which really didn't work out. And it felt a bit like the club were always trying these short-term fixes. And I think across the board, at, at board level from the owners to Edu, who was the uh, sporting director, technical director, Mikel Arteta, um, they put in place a plan. They had to They had to do something different. So they recruited young players. They recruited players from the Premier League. Um, developing a team, you know, a young team that could grow together. It's probably grown quicker than most people would have expected. But but I think they they just got to a point where they said, look, we have to do things a little bit differently, a bit more intelligently, smarter. Don't throw 
bad money at players who really don't have any significant future at the club. So the short-term deals have gone out the window. Um, I mean, you could look at what we've done in January and say Trossard and Jorginho aren't exactly long-term signings, but they've come after signing a, a load of players in the 20, 21, 22-year-old bracket, which makes it easier to make those signings because you're not as reliant on them. And I think the the, the core of the group is still really young and growing together and, and has lots of room for improvement. As part of that, it feels like um, there was pressure uh, last year externally um, on the manager for a period of time. But from what you're saying, it feels like the, the, there was alignment at board level and within everywhere that essentially their guy was Arteta and they were going to allow him to exercise the, the collective plan. Absolutely. I mean, it's probably forgotten, but before the end of last season, Mikel Arteta signed a new contract. That was before the 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 race for the top four was over. Ultimately, Arsenal didn't finish in the top four. They were pipped to it by Tottenham. But but Arteta had been given the backing of the club before that. So he very much is the guy that they see as the future. Um, he's done an incredible job since he came in. There have been ups and downs, of course. But when you consider everything Arsenal as a club have been through over the last number of years with the end of Arsene Wenger, Unai Emery, um, all of that, the club, like it's like night and day now night and day the the difference in how people feel about the way the club is run is just off the charts um we were chatting in advance of the uh, game against sporting wondering that like ultimately if you don't have anything else to play for this season really then the premier league is it a disaster if if they were to go out maybe the manner in which they went out is is going to leave a very sour taste and i know as an arsenal fan you're like i want my trophies give me my trophies but at the mm-hmm. same time if you're cold and calculating as the manager you're going okay 10 games if we just perform at the level we know we're capable of we're actually going to be champions at the end of the season i can only speak for myself there were europa league exits which were more painful than this one it has to be said, because that was basically the be-all and end-all of the season. The Europa League was a chance for a trophy, a European trophy. Arsenal don't have too many of those, so there was a lot invested in that. And then, of course, there's the double prize of uh, getting into the Champions League by virtue of winning the Europa League. So there were a lot of eggs in the Europa League basket in previous seasons. This time around, it's much more easy to compartmentalize a European exit because there is something else to play for, something bigger to play for. And Manchester City, who are the, uh, the the title rivals, are in the FA Cup. They're in the Champions League. They've got the Premier League to deal with. They have a big squad and they have all the experience of, of going deep into these competitions and performing at a high level. But I think if you're asking, you know, the, the Europa League, maybe this season was a chance to stress test the Arsenal squad. Was it strong enough to compete properly across two fronts? Maybe the exit tells you that no. It's not quite there yet. There's still work to do in terms of squad building and recruitment and things like that. So in the context of where we are and what's to play for, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to be out of the Europa League because, like you say, there's 10 Premier League games. It gives Mikel Arteta and the players more time to organize, to prepare, to uh, recuperate from the the intensity of these last 10 games, which is going to be... Is going to be uh, it's going to be tough going, I think, because there's some difficult fixtures in there. But you would rather, let's say, play Liverpool away without having to deal with going to Juventus either side of that. 
You were there to see the uh, the concession against Palace at the weekend, Andrew, you said at the top, and uh, there's been so much spoken about the set-piece concessions by Arsenal this season. I don't know if there's like a bit of PTSD that dates back to the last little blip at the start of last month in that uh, Tarkowski goal. Like, it does feel like they... I almost don't view it so much as a set-piece thing as it been a bit vulnerable from a wide ball at times. Um, they can look a little bit at sixes and sevens, um, despite the quality that you've already outlined that, that exists in that area of the pitch. What's your view on it? I think it's something that will probably be a worry for Mikel Arteta. You know, over the international break, I think he'll probably sit down with his coaching staff and think about, you know, how they can improve in that regard. You know, it's one of those where it doesn't really matter when you've scored four at the other end. Letting one in is never good, but you can live with it because you've won 4-1, like you say, at Everton away when you don't take your chances and you concede from a set piece. Um, You know, that can be really, really costly. So I, I think primarily it is just a bit of a period in the season where a few goals have gone in in that way and it looks maybe a bit more serious than it is um but i don't think it's something the manager will take lightly because he's very much a perfectionist he does look for his players to win every challenge win every duel win every header and when they don't he's not going to be happy so he'll be looking at those things quite closely but i think in general Arsenal's defensive record and and um, the ability from set pieces and and those kinds of things has been has been pretty good for most of the season. So hopefully it's just a, a temporary thing. Yeah, we need to uh, we need to improve that. Was the words of Arteta, which I read in the uh, aftermath of that. I was like, oh, that's that's good. That's good information. Now, how the hell do you do that? Of course, is the next uh, the next step. Um, can we ask you one about um, events up the road? I'm sure you're. Um, as much as you're delighting in everything that's happening in uh, your own club at the minute, Tottenham, uh, Tottenham's little implosion, I'm sure, is doing no harm as well. This like feels to me to be a masterclass by Antonio Conte because he's like wangled away out the door where nobody's saying he's a particularly bad manager. I've seen him linked with Juventus this morning. This is a this is a masterclass, isn't it? Um, well, if you're asking me as an Arsenal fan what I think of it, it's pretty funny to be honest. The way he went in on the players and went in on the. Um went in on the, the the owners of the football club. He wasn't pulling any punches. I think the, the, the best part about it is this crisis is happening while Tottenham are in the top four. Uh, you know, they've been in worse positions in their time and um, who knows where it goes from here. But he did sound like a man who is just completely fed up. And I think, you know, as funny as it is, objectively, it's very difficult to argue with a lot of the stuff that he said about the history of the Tottenham, if you remember uh, uh, Chiellini um, making that comment in the past. So uh, the more the merrier, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Obviously, there's greater focus on what Arsenal need to do between now and the end of the season, but we're 20 points clear of them, and uh, that's always a happy place to be. The uh, women's team are up against Bayern Munich in a a Champions League quarterfinal. Um, That's a it's part of their history that they are actually Champions League winners. So they go yeah. into games like this with a greater sense of expectation. And um, I think there's a good chance that they might be able to come through this tie. Hopefully. I mean, obviously, the, the, the loss of Beth Mead and Vivian Miedema, you know, is a real blow to any team to lose two players of that caliber and that quality. But there is a real belief within this squad. There's a, a good togetherness. The manager is is doing a good job. And yeah, they're in action tonight, fingers crossed. Um, you know, they can bring home another European trophy. Like I said, Arsenal's uh, for its history and everything else. The record in Europe isn't as good as it should be. So if the women can add to the trophy collection, then uh, that'd be great. Andrew, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers.
Cheers, guys. Sandra Mangan of Ars Blog there giving us his thoughts this morning on, as I said, the unstoppable juggernaut of Arsenal. John Duggan is with us. John, good morning to you. Ger and Adrian, how's it going? Uh, the Arsenal fans are enjoying what's going on at uh, Spurs at the moment. Oh, let's go Erling Haaland, what? <laughs> let's catch you in the, the last game of the season and have the devastation for Arsenal. So let's bring that on. That's the best? That's the best you can do? That's the best hope that Spurs fans have at the moment? Ah, no, no, look. Um, do you want Conte gone now? Or would you oh, yeah, absolutely, go, get out of here. And look, he wants that himself as well. If you were on 100 grand a year, you'd be on a good wage, right? It would take you 150 years to be on that wage to earn what Antonio Conte earns a year at Tottenham. And unless you have a Montgomery Burns chamber, you're not going to be living 150 years off 100 grand a year to make 15 million a year and put out a team that he did. I know he wasn't in the country, but put out the team that he did against Sheffield United in the FA Cup when the club has, what, won one trophy in 22 years. And he'd leave Harry Kane on the bench for over an hour. It would be a different feel if they were in the top four and in a FA Cup semi-final. Big time. You'd think like, oh, you know, it's a game at Wembley, it's a chance of, the team knows how to win one-off big games. They've, they've won one-off big games this season. Yes, against Manchester City at home. The champions, to beat Chelsea at home comfortably. And um, he just threw everybody under the bus and didn't take any responsibility. His football is turgid. It's not easy on the eye. And also... There hasn't been an Italian winner of a Champions League in 13 years. He's done great stuff in Italy, but he's never bought a team beyond a quarter final of a Champions League. Um, what about uh, your Cheltenham experience? Have you come down off the high heights? Ah, look, it's always great to be there, lads. It's just a privilege to be there. It's lovely to be there on Gold Cup Day and to be an Irish person and on Patrick's Day at Cheltenham was, was pretty awesome. And then to see Gallup and Deschamps produced such a brilliant performance in the Gold Cup and one of the best rides you'll ever see by Paul Tennant. Some great stories during the week where there's John Gleeson, the Leaving Cert student, winning the bumper or Henry de Bromhead speaking so openly about uh, the, the, the rough time he's had and Rachel Blackmore winning for him on Honeysuckle and Constitution Hill winning the champion hurdle and hopefully going over fences now. And um, Yeah, it was just an amazing week and 18 Irish winners is, uh, is always something to be proud of given we're in the golden age of the sport. Um, speaking of uh, a strong Irish backroom team, Paddy McCarthy is yes. going to be the assistant manager. And Palace, yeah. Dean Kiley's uh, retaining his position as the goalkeeping coach. Roy Hodgson has been officially confirmed as the new manager of Crystal Palace this morning. Back to the future, baby. That's it. Uh, they're only three points above the drop zone and they don't score enough goals. So Roy will have to try and get them scoring a few goals. But it's Does a man you want to inspire a team to score goals? It's, oh, oh, hang on a second. It's definitely not Roy Hodgson. <laughs> Like even a Harry Redknapp or somebody would have been somebody who would have given a bit of a jolt. Yeah. Um, didn't I get to meet Harry in the end at Chatham, Um But I know he was there. But yeah, look, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see. It's, it's really the Hunger Games, isn't it, down the bottom of the Premier League at the moment. And there's about six or seven teams there that, that could still go down and still stay up. It's very hard to call who will the, the three be, you know. Anything else going on today? Uh, well, I hope they get to Zerbi in at Spurs, by the way. Love to see him there. They've had 10 permanent coaches in, in Daniel Levy's time at the club. So not only does Conte need to go, but Daniel Levy needs to go and the club needs to be sold. And that's my final word on the matter. A bit of a wish list there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else is going on? Um, well, Katie Taylor obviously fighting in Dublin on the 20th of uh, May against Chantel Cameron. Great to see her speak to Ashlyn yesterday. Uh, John, Johnny Sexton a dad for Lancer's game against Ulster on Saturday week with a groin problem. I think there seems to be obviously a lot of confidence that Ross Byrne can step up. 
Um, Scott Robertson's got the New Zealand job. Breakdance Ahoy. I don't know if you guys have ever breakdanced. Um, Not a chance, JD. Yeah. I can moonwalk, but... I've seen your moonwalk. It's very impressive. Yeah, yeah. Obviously well-fueled. Um, uh, talk about revamping the Hurling League. But the problem with the Hurling League is the Hurling League is effectively the round robin is the Hurling League. In no, Munster, no one cares about it, yeah. In Munster and, 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 and Leinster. So that's what generally is going on. All Obviously right. no matches. And the Ireland jerseys cost 80 quid. All right. And uh, yeah, there's not a lot of people, not a lot of love apart from, from Adrian Barry for the new Ireland jersey so far this morning. Uh, good stuff, JD. Right, Thanks a million for that. More from John across the week, of course, and on Saturday on Off the Ball on News Talk at 8.50 this morning, though. We're uh, delighted to welcome Ugo Manya, uh, ex-England and Harlequins, uh, to the show. Ugo, good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, we, uh, we're we in the nice period where we're reflecting on how we managed to bounce from the success of the Grand Slam into the World Cup. Slightly different environment, I suspect, in English rugby at the moment. It is. I guess it's a period of reflection. Obviously, um, a disappointed Six Nations, certainly not the results or some of the performances that we'd wanted, but... Bounce straight back into the Gallagher Premiership Heineken Cup. So uh, for the teams competing in that, um, I guess a sense, sense of excitement. Harlequins play Saracens at the Tottenham um, Hotspur Stadium this weekend. So that's a big game off the back of playing multiple internationals. So uh, hopefully the players can bounce back into that, get comfortable in their club environments and uh, start reaching the peaks of the performances, which we know they're capable of. That's... Um split personality that you must have if you're an England international where the uh, the club has such a, a power and a draw over you and you've got such responsibility to it. Is there any way for Steve Borthwick to surf that and, and still produce a, an English international team that can compete with France and Ireland and New Zealand and South Africa at the moment? Yeah, I, I think that. And some people might think, well, you're deluded by thinking that. But if you were to go through the players and look at perhaps not some of the performance in the Six Nations, but the potential of the players, then I'm finding it difficult to to not suggest that they can still be really competitive. And having a two-and-a-half, three-month pre-season, I know there's only a few warm-up matches to go, but I think that period of during that pre-season this summer is going to be critical. Getting everyone on the same page, totally understanding the philosophy um, Steve Borthwick hasn't had time. He just hasn't, you know, and I, I think that's really clear to be able to state that when you look at Ireland and France and they're into that, they're at the end of their four year cycle building towards this World Cup. Steve Borthwick, this is, we were stepping into week eight of it. And you can see that gap in terms of the performances, of course. But when I look at the individuals, uh, when I look at their capability, when I look at what History has shown me from their performances, yes, they underperformed to their ability. But the question is, how can we get all of the players that are involved in English rugby at the moment and available to play in the World Cup, how can we get them touching, reaching their their potential? Hugo, uh, your view on like whether... I was going to ask you, are England better or worse off now than when Eddie Jones left? But I'm almost taken from what you're saying that it's sort of irrelevant in the sense that it's a, it's a work in progress. I think so. The, the debate as to whether it was the right time for Eddie and Steve Borthwick or the rest of it, I think that's kind of in parts because our situation is our situation. So how do we get the very best out of it? And I honestly, I put so much emphasis on, on that summer. Um, Steve Borthwick said in the press conferences last weekend that 
they have to close that gap and they've got to learn and get that centre cohesion quicker than any other international rugby team. You look at the kind of the top five nations and they have that sense of stability, same coaches, same voices, a few different tweets here and there, but they've had that consistency for four years. England obviously don't have that. I look at I look at Irish rugby at the minute, not just what uh, Johnny Sexton and Andy Farrell and the rest of the team did, but I look at what they're doing in the 20s. So that connectivity of pathway performance, which ultimately has provided them two Grand Slams across the last five rounds, which, which is unbelievable. That's that's exceptional. Um, English rugby doesn't have that model domestically and then going into the international game. So we have to find our own way. I think France have done a remarkable job since 2019. Fabio Galtier came into that coaching staff overlooking it knowing that he was going to take the reins the minute that World Cup finished. And he's been embedded there, brought in the likes of Sean Edwards um, and developed a game plan, as well as having some extraordinary players like Antoine Dupont, who surely go down as one of the greatest of our generation. And it feels hard even saying that, but he's certainly worthy of it, considering he's still only 26, isn't he? Yeah, it's sensational, right? And like, look, we, the, the French. I, I would on home soil. I'd make the, the French the favourites to win the World Cup. It, it, they they did have a big power struggle with the clubs, where they got a bit more access to the players, and they obviously have rules in place about the the number of um, uh, GIF players who are qualified, to, the, who are allowed to play in the top fourteen. English rugby still seems to be kind of at war with the between the clubs and the RFU. Or if there's ever a piece, it's always a a very tenuous piece. Yeah, I wouldn't say English rugby was at war with one another at the minute. So you've got Simon Massey-Taylor, who's the CEO of Premiership Rugby. He used to work at England rugby. So having the understanding being on both sides of the fence, I think really helps the conversation and the relationship. And there is a strong relationship. Then you've got Bill Sweeney, the CEO of English rugby. He obviously understands that. Um, and we're currently actually negotiating a PGA, the professional game agreement. That's going to be critical as to what that looks like for the success of English rugby going forward. I do think everyone understands where we are. There's still the legacy of COVID, which some clubs are suffering from. And we've seen some of the governance within the game hasn't quite been where it needed to be. We've lost two clubs in the Gallagher Premiership. So I think when things go badly, there, there's a real sense of collaborations. And that's with the owners within the within the Gallagher Premiership. That's with the CEO and English rugby. And if you can connect the dots and everyone understands how one how one can help another, then we'll, we should get to a good agreement which will give a platform and the, the infrastructure for the game to grow and reach its potential also. I was unaware of the, the uh, PGA negotiations. Is that uh, a process that's coming to an end? Is it, is it like How long do you think before one is, is publicly announced? Um, so the PGA agreement, to the best of my knowledge, comes to an end at the end of the season. So there are negotiations for, in, for a new contract, the terms of what that's going to look like, which would ordinarily be a, a, during a World Cup cycle, could be four years. Um, so yeah, all, all of that's happening right now. And so the deep dive into... What, what needs to be done. And by the way, the Gallagher Premiership, I, I work in it, I see it every single week, and it blows my mind as to the quality and the level of competitiveness on the pitch. The international game, obviously England haven't been where they've needed to be since 2019, and we're trying to work on that now, but how can one complement the other? And so those conversations, those contracts, the terms of references and details within it have certainly been worked on right now. 
just on a more short term uh, issue, Hugo, the just around the uh, out half selection, like looking at Owen Farrell at the weekend, he really looks like a wartime consigliere. Like he's prowling around the pitch. He's such a presence. He's such a leader. He's a bloody good player. Um, I, I think I'm right to say you were one of the ones that was calling for Smith pre France. You, are you? Uh, you can cl- bring clarity to that if I'm wrong on that. And then just your view on. Like it feels like he might be the right player at the right time for England for now, and maybe Smith is the more uh, sort of intermediate um, uh, term replacement. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation, and it's one that's coveted so many headlines, column inches, and I almost feel it's 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 an answer that needs is a question that needs to be answered, but also um, it's it kind of acts as a bit of a distraction, I think. So we take Marcus Smith played against France. I think you could have had Dan Carter at the peak of his power 2005 with Jonah Lomu on the wing and England still wouldn't have won. It wasn't about the performance of the 10, in my opinion. It's our inability to be able to get on the front foot and show that level of physicality. You can play any style of rugby you want to play, but the fundamentals of the game in the amateur era today and perhaps in the next 20 years will forever remain the same. Is a contact collision sport. And if you don't win contacts or collisions, you can't play any type of rugby. So the debate around who plays at 10, I think, is a secondary or tertiary question. The first thing is, like, how do we want to play? The minute you understand how you want to play, then you implement players within that system. You have to look at who your best players are and put a game plan that suits them the best. But once you have sheer clarity or clear clarity, Actually, they they say the same thing. Once you have clarity, apologies, over how you want to play and the direction of travel, then I think the players fit into that system. Any player who wants to play for Ireland understands, I think, what it takes to play for Ireland, whether you're in the forwards or the backs. And you can go for all the different positions, but can't you? In the front row, I think you need to quite clearly be a brilliant scrummager, but you look at the whole pack and they're all ball-playing they're all ball playing forwards. It's really obvious as to how they how they want to play. So if your player sat outside of that group, you need to work on your skills. You need to work on your fitness to be able to fit into that. And England, whilst they've um, had a look and experimented to to a relative extent across the last five matches, is still exploring. I think at least how they want to play. Once they get that clarity, I think the players then fit into the systems. Whose vision is it for that? Is that, is that Borthwick's vision? And are there lessons, you know, obviously haven't watched them very closely at Leicester. Do you expect it to be similar or was Leicester specific to the environment at Leicester? Yeah, um, I think Steve Borthwick got asked the question um, before the start of the tournament, can um, domestic game plans or the way in which you work at club level work at international level? I think historically it has. You go back to 2007, South Africa winning it with a a good set piece, good defence, good kicking game. Um, but I think in this World Cup, is you need more. Ireland have a good kicking game. They have a very good kicking game. They have a dominant set piece and they've got the best defence, the best defence. Simon Easterby doesn't get enough credit for the job he's doing. In fact, for as much as we can talk about Ireland's attack, it's actually Ireland's defence, which is their standout performer. So, there's that. But on top of all of that, Ireland's unbelievable um, ruthless efficiency when they get into the areas that matter, the 22, they come away with points. 
So there you go. For France, they do all those fundamental things very well, but they have this wild X factor and X factor players. New Zealand will have it, South Africa have it, Australia, Argentina, Scotland have it. So I think you just need more. I think Steve Borthwick is a very, very diligent man, super bright, um, loves his analysis, a proper student of the game. He'll realise that England will have to develop their game to compete with the best teams in the world because you've only got to watch them and see what they produce. Um, and you've got to understand to be able to match or go one better that you need to have a game plan which isn't identical to that but certainly has aspects which can really challenge it. Yeah, You actually are coming across quite positive about the future here. Is that largely on the basis of what you think might be able to happen in that window where for an unbroken period of time everybody who was in the England camp would be focused exclusively on England which obviously happens so rarely for, yeah, for those. Yeah, of course. I think um, it's quite understandable as a fan to to be to for your initial response to be highly emotional, right? England won two out of five. That's not good enough. Everyone understands that and accepts that. But when you look at the potential, when you look at the when you look at the players, when you look at the time they're going to have in camp, and in fact, when you look at their pool, you're thinking, "Hang on a second. I was chatting to Sam Warburton Sunday night. It was on Rugby Special. Did the podcast of him after, and he said." People might think that I sound crazy. And by the way, he's a brilliant pundit. He said, I could see Wales get to a semi-final. But people would look at, listen to that statement and go, what are you on about? Like, you won one game out of five. But I get what he's saying. I think the pre-season, having significant time in camp, becomes, acts a bit of a leveller. You go into a six nations where you effectively have 10, 11 training sessions, and then you have to hit the ground running. And that's where I think Ireland take quite a leap on a lot of other teams. They always hit the the ground running week one because they have 12 out of their 15 that come from Leinster. Leinster play a very similar, if not identical way into which Ireland plays. So get that sense of cohesion is very easy. For Scotland with two different teams and you've got Finn from Paris coming in, takes a bit longer with England brand new coach, 10 training sessions coming from 11 different teams trying to implement that one game plan. But when you have that undivided attention for two and a half, three months, where everyone can be on the same page, they're also bringing in Richard Wigglesworth, Alid Walters, who is the strength conditioning coach for South Africa in their last World Cup campaign, then you can see a sense of positivity. We're we're five months away, six months away from, from a World Cup. I'm certainly not going to sit in the camp that it's crisis. It's terrible. I accept where England are right now, but I'm excited about where England could potentially go. I think it's obviously a brutal learning experience too. You mentioned uh, Alan Waters there. I think he's at Munster before South Africa, so we're yeah. pretty familiar with him in this part of the world. But there was nobody overseeing the full strength and conditioning uh, over the course of the Six Nations the way he will be when he comes in. I'm sure there was some influence and you know they didn't have nobody doing it, but they'd, the previous guy left before the Six Nations, in retrospect maybe, if, if uh, Borthwick had his time again, they might get somebody for more continuity and manage that transition a little bit better because the players didn't look fit enough. They didn't look like they were at the level of uh, Ireland or even France um, when those two teams played them. Uh, there was a, like a, a little bit of a difference, but at international rugby, that's significant. So it's a brutal introduction to the test environment for Borthwick. And the challenge for him now is to make sure that he's able to take all of the lessons on and sift through the stuff that's really important, you know, which is the style and the forwards and the fitness and the uh, tactics and the stuff that's not that important about like ultimately the, the 10 decision will be made by who's best 
uh, to implement the game plan on the field. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Like, let the main thing be the main thing. So figure out what that is. And then the details, I think, follow that. You have to have a framework, a game plan. And the one thing he really needs is time. Um, don't have a huge amount of it. But, you know, I knowing the type of personality that Steve is, he's so consistent. The exact same as a player, like an absolute rugby student loved it really diligent and speak to anyone that's worked with him at Leicester and it's one of those when you're at England camp or international camp you ask the players how's the coach oh he's great or, well of course you're going to say it's great but you speak to players that worked with him who aren't playing international rugby and they swear by him they really love the sense of clarity and purpose that he gives of course it didn't manifest itself in terms of results and he'd have been disappointed but the one thing which you have to go through, whether it's good or bad. Unfortunately, some of the experience for England was bad, is that there's a real sense of honesty because you can't hide from some of the performances. You can't hide after the France performance, can you? So you can kind of put away all the BS and just go, this is where we're at. This is where we need to get to. And the question that needs to be answered is, how do we take our game from where it currently is to where we think we can be? And that requires a a good level of understanding, deep level of introspection um, and reflection, and then trying to communicate that with with the group, um, which might look different come the summer, come the World Cup, because um, there's some big opportunities now for some players to get some game time under their belt. The, 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 the domestic rugby doesn't replicate the international game. It, it just doesn't. But across the summer, with one of the most highly regarded fitness coaches in world rugby being in charge of that department, I think physically, fitness-wise, tactically, England will be absolutely on the money. But then the question is, will it still be good enough? Because every team, by the way, will have a two-and-a-half-month, three-month preseason. You look at the Southern Hemisphere teams that go into the rugby championship, they play the highest level of international rugby. They play the rugby championship, um, go into mini camps, and then they're ready for a World Cup. So, um, you know, they'd have sharpened their tools 100%. We'll have our World Cup war matches across the summer. And everyone in terms of fitness, understanding, should be on a level playing field. But in terms of the development of a team, it takes longer than seven weeks. It takes longer than a couple of months. And that's the gap which England have to close um, and you can do that a number of ways. We've all enjoyed the last few weeks. Here you go. We've been uh, obviously celebrating events over the weekend, uh, yeah. but in the Irish psyche, we have a lot of World Cup PTSD. So we've spent the last 48 hours sort of talking ourselves away from the uh, possibility of winning the thing. Are we going to win the thing? I mean, it's hard to bet against Ireland right now. I um, t- To achieve what they achieved at the weekend was truly remarkable and so fitting on so many different um, um, reasons. For Johnny Sexton, for his first kick and in his last game, the Six Nations be the all-time point top scorer, I think it's unbelievable. For the consistency that Ireland have shown is brilliant. But I think they'll take more out of their tour to New Zealand than they will from this Grand Slam winning. And that's not to take anything away from the Six Nations. To be one test down in a three-test series away in New Zealand, have never done it before, that's brilliant. Ireland and some of those players have won Grand Slams before. They know what it takes. But with an eye on the World Cup, 
it's great to have in your muscle memory that you have the ability to do things that you've never done before. And if Ireland are to win a World Cup, that's exactly what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to get past the quarterfinals, which is something that's eluded them, semifinals and final. And now they've got that muscle memory of, oh, well, we went to New Zealand. We lost the first test. We bounced back for the final two. And there were injuries that we're still able to do it. I think it's remarkable. I also think the Southern Hemisphere will give us a bit of a rude awakening when the rugby championship starts. Remember us? Hey, we're New Zealand. We're quite good at rugby. South Africa, the same. Argentina, Australia. So I think that'd be competitive. But I'm just absolutely loving the narrative at the moment of, if you want to be the number one side in the world, you have to chase us up in the Northern Hemisphere. For, for, for so long, it's been, how do we get close to South Africa? How do we get close to New Zealand? And they'll be part of the conversation. But the world's looking at, how do we get close to Ireland? How do we get close to France? And that's great. We've not had someone win the World Cup for 20 years. And the stars are aligning a little bit with it being a Northern Hemisphere World Cup and number one and number two in the world occupying those positions, Ireland and France, that this may have been, this may be the best opportunity we have to reclaim the William Webb Ellis and hold it up north for a little bit. That would be good. Hugo, great to have you with us. Thanks a million, man. Cheers. Cheers. Take care. So good on you there giving us his thoughts and uh, good to get the English perspective. It's a good point, actually. The um, So whenever anybody mentions the t- uh, series win in New Zealand, I'm like, yeah, but we lost the game. And if we were to lose like the quarterfinal, we don't get to play the same team again the next week knowing everything we learned from the first one. But it's the bit there that it's like uh, you're doing something you haven't done before. And also, like, they had to win the second test. It's a cup final because there's no other games really the third game is irrelevant and then you have to win the third game because it's a cup final mm. there's no other game so I'm, I'm, I'm liking it I'm, I'm, you're, 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 I'm, I'm listening Ugo I'm loving his uh, we <laughs> we should reclaim so we're all, we're all aboard the Ireland train uh, I, yeah look totally the only thing that would make a slight concern is obviously the small margins the tiny tiny margins that sometimes like rugby's a strange sport because it doesn't take much in the end, really. To you could end up putting fourteen points in a team, and it's like, oh, there was a big gap, and actually, yeah. not a lot. Referee, uh, referees the rook a certain way for half an hour, and game's over. You've conceded four penalties, and they scored like. three tries off the from a set piece. And you're like, well, we actually we we dominated the game. Like, no, you didn't. Well, we did, yeah. but no one listens. Uh, right, Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of Off The Ball. New Braeburn locations are popping up every month. Visit applegreenstores.com forward slash Braeburn to find your nearest Braeburn coffee experience. Some highlights on the Off The Ball podcast network for you today, Monday Night Rugby, the latest Koi Gig pod and our latest football pod. Uh, you can follow us across our social channels. Make sure you subscribe to the OTB podcast network. After the break, Sarah Donovan on the weekend's hurling. First, Katie Taylor speaking with her own Ashling O'Reilly yesterday about her homecoming fight in the Three Arena. It's, uh, it's crazy really um, it's been a long time coming for sure and uh, yeah like I said 22 fights in we're, we're, t- we're, we're finally uh, talking about this but there was a point where I was thinking this is never going to happen so I'm so happy that, uh, that it is signed and sealed now um, um, bring a uh, pro box on home and uh, we are a people who love this noble art so uh, and for a very small country we're, we're very very good at it so it's great to, to, to bring it home and I expect to produce um, a great performance and this could be the biggest night in my career. Amazing. It was meant to happen in, in Crow Park. It, it's yeah. not happening now. It's going to be in the Tree Arena. How did you feel about all of that? 
Yeah, I mean, I obviously don't let my um, mind go there, really. Um, my job is to focus on the, on the boxing part, and that's why I have a team of people around me. Their job is to focus on that part. Uh, I, I obviously would have absolutely loved to find Crow Park. It's their most iconic arena in 80,000 people, but here we are, uh, the tree arena it is, and I'm just happy to, to be fighting in front of my home crowd for the first time as a as a pro, and it's not some normal fights against uh, an undisputed champion and um, an undefeated fighter. Um, we could have chosen an, an easier route, but we wanted to bring a, a huge fight home for the fans. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. It's 9.14 this morning. We're turning our attention to hurling and Sarah Donovan is with us to look back at the weekend that was. Um, Sarah, not a lot of hurling on the telly over the weekend. Were you feeling a bit hard done by? Struggles to find it, Ger. Um, I'm a bit surprised, actually. I'm thinking at this stage, could Orty not have a football show and a hurling show? Because they're two completely different sports. I mean, it's a radical idea here, but it is also a factor of the fact that so little is at stake in the hurling league. Uh, like, uh, we all, we all, sorry, we, we know that for the managers, the individual matches and the, the players who are emerging, and look, um, I think is it Kilkenny, uh, or sorry, Freudian slip, go away, I've lost all your work. Um, like, you know, these things really, really matter and they will have significant impact later on in the summer, but the, um, no one's going to remember who the league champions are when it comes round to All-Ireland Hurling semi-final, Munster final, All-Ireland final. Yeah, but if we look across the water, we have the Premier League, we have the FA Cup, we have the Carabao Cup. Like every every game has merit and every team has fans. So there was a place to watch Cork v Clare. I'd have watched it. If there was a place to watch, um, you know, Limerick, uh, beat Westmead I'd have watched it it's just we follow hurling we're passionate about hurling and you know a 10 minute segment at the end of Sunday game on Sunday night wasn't enough for me so I, I suspect that uh, GA Go is going to be the answer to that um, in into the future and that like as that rolls out and as subscriber numbers grow they'll find that it's actually worthwhile for them to put those games on and they'll be able to know know that pretty quickly but um, the bits that we did see what were your what were your key takeaways you watched the Kilkenny Waterford game in full yeah I did I look Waterford are on a flight to Portugal today. So make of that what you will. You know, was that flight booked before Saturday? <laughs> they're they're doing a training camp this week. Um, but obviously they were missing a raft of players. And actually Kilkenny were without Richie Reid and Owen Murphy due to concussion protocols from the Dublin game. And Waterford were without Austin Gleeson, Connor Prunty, uh, Stephen Bennett, Mikey Kiley. It, it was two pretty deplete, depleted teams, right? Um it, it was a gritty game. The conditions were appalling again. Really wet ground. Um, players really struggled uh, with, with even controlling the ball. Um, but I suppose Kilkenny grounded out and great late score from Alan Murphy. Having been fouled and took on the play Kilkenny style and, and managed to, to get the winner for Kilkenny. So I suppose Kilkenny will be happier. And looking at next week, you know, they will really fancy themselves against Cork. Um Okay, well, let, let's start with Kilkenny then, get, get a, mm-hmm. a bit deeper into that. Uh, we, we didn't know what to make or what to expect of Kilkenny post-Cody. What signs are you seeing of some kind of pattern about what their identity is going to be over the course of the rest of the year? Well, they started really slowly. Um, you know, they, they only 
I suppose, beat Antrim by seven points in the first round of the league. And then, you know, we were watching them um, against Tip and they didn't show up against Tip. Um, so there was a bit of concern there. But obviously, as they've added quality back into the side, um, you know, I suppose the likes of Owen Cody, the likes of John Donnelly, Billy Drennan um, have really shown up in the last uh, three weeks. And... I like their style of play. Um, Connor Fogarty in the middle is is really centering them. Um, I I, th- I think they've just found a rhythm again, and they were workmen like against Waterford. And Waterford went ahead on on Saturday by three points with about kind of fifteen minutes to go, and looked, I suppose, looked like to be in the ascendancy. But Kilkenny just stepped up on them, uh, really pressured them, started to turn them over and then get scores again. So I suppose that's what we expect from Kilkenny is to be put under that massive pressure and be able to come out of it. Do you think the sort of ascendancy for Kilkenny is something that they're going to continue over like the rest of the league and into the championship? Like, is that the direction they're heading or is are they still settling as a squad? Well, look, you look at the players that have still to come back in. Adrian Mullen still has to come back in. TJ Reid still has to come back in. Um, they have a nice run in now in that they can go at this Cork team next week, um, conceivably win that game, get into a league final, go hammer and tongs at that. The Leinster Championship for them, I don't see as a pressure cooker the way the Munster Championship is. So they should target this league to go out and win it and then look at the Leinster Championship and start picking off teams in that they don't really feel the pressure until June. You know, the, you're looking at where, what's the 20th, 21st of March. June is when Kilkenny will really start to feel that pressure that the teams in Munster will start feeling on the 30th of April. Does that kind of go back then to like the point Joe was making earlier about the league and what it actually matters to these teams? Um, I, I think the season has been flipped so significantly that players and fans are adjusting to the season and the league does have its merit and we just have to get used to the fact that teams use it as a kind of a, a stepping stone for the championship but ultimately not everyone can win the championship there's two cups to be won so why not put your stamp on the league I guess that's the point isn't it that um, uh, if you are Kilkenny at the end of this and you have a trophy and there's a night of celebration before the Leinster Championship starts then Derek Ling and his selectors are going to feel pretty good about life whereas for other teams some teams will absolutely celebrate it but if Limerick win the league they'll be like okay you know yeah, it's, but, it's pretty tepid from the point of view of, of Limerick, you know, with the heights that they've gotten to over the last number of years. I'm sure they'd but, celebrate the night, you know, and I'm sure they would and they would take it as an opportunity to do that. But obviously they have much bigger fish to fry really quickly afterwards. But I, I, I buy the argument that for Kilkenny, something like this would actually be a useful endorsement of, uh, no, we're going in the right direction here. Don't be worrying. We've all got this. Yeah, it's an, it, it, and they're embracing a new style, you know, um, and, and there's there's players on that Kilkenny team who don't have National League medals, you know, so every player, Dan Morrissey was speaking about it a couple of weeks ago, I think he has two, um, they matter, they're in your pocket after you retire, so why not go after it in season? Uh, okay, what about Waterford then? You said they were very depleted and so that's fair enough, but it, we're still awaiting the evidence of the first round of the Munster Championship to see how many of those players who were injured would actually make it back in time for that so hard to know exactly what to expect um, are you seeing anything specific that you can say okay that's the work of, of Davy and his coaches 
Right. Well, look, I suppose the, a big talking point on Sunday was the formation for their puckouts. So Jack Fagan ended up next to, <laughs> next to, well, he was partially in the square, in, in the Kilkenny square. Um, 13 players inside the Kilkenny half on a puckout, only two Waterford players inside the 45. It really, I suppose, unusual setup. So um, sorry, this but, is this is defensively when Waterford are pucking out. Yeah, when right. when Waterford are pucking. Oh, sorry, out the when ball, Kilkenny are pucking out. No, when Waterford are pucking out the ball. All right. But when, when Waterford are pucking out the ball, two Waterford players inside the forty-five, and every other Waterford player is as far up the field as they can go. Okay, that's very aggressive. Su- that is very aggressive, and the suggestion was that this is a look towards Limerick that if those wing backs are moving towards the opposition goal then that automatically means that the likes of Garrett Hagerty, Tom Morrissey have to follow them, have to track them back the field and it takes the pressure off of the Waterford defence. It's a high wire act because uh, if there's two (laughs) Waterford defenders in their own half, there will be two Limerick attackers and they could be two of the greatest attackers in the history of the game, you know? Um, The turnovers that that could ensue from this are mind-boggling and I'm a little terrified. Um, but I'm dying to see by it. By this setup. Like, wouldn't it be amazing to watch? <laughs> oh, God, Jar, I, I don't think hurling needs that radical. Change. Oh, come on. <laughs> I don't. I don't, genuinely. I, there's a reason why wing backs play wing back. You know, it isn't, there is not a necessity for a wing back to end up corner forward on, on their own puck out. Um, I'm against Davy on this one. And after the match, Davy spoke about the low ebb that Waterford were in after losing to Clare last year and the horror that was the championship. And interestingly, Liam Cahill, who was obviously in that Waterford dressing room, now has Tip, who had as equally a tough year last year and has not kind of driven the same narrative coming out of his dressing room with Tip this year. So I think Davy could lay off on the Waterford being desperate last year narrative and focus on the positives, you know. Um, I think some PR would would be helpful there. As in, you think it's wrong to talk about uh, somebody else's team, and because uh, it is a different team. Like that was uh, the 2022 team. This is the 2023 team. Yeah, yeah, and I think that uh, I suppose by in direct contrast, you know, Liam Cahill went into Tip, who didn't have a good year last year. And and his, all of his post-match interviews have been incredibly positive. Now, helped by the fact that they're on a five-batch unbeaten run. But uh, but my thinking here is you don't necessarily need to labour the point that a team had a difficult year last year when you're talking about, you know, the new season. So uh, I think Waterford needs that break uh, in Portugal this week. And uh, hopefully they'll uh, decide to scrap that mad puck out strategy that they that they showed against Kilkenny last oh, week. Oh no, I'm dying to see it. Come on, that would be like, it'll be an all-time great. It's like um, Lar chasing Tommy around uh, Croke Park, right? It, horrendous. And we'll never forget it. Honestly, we'll never forget it. It's uh, I can't. The hurling has a structure and, and it is beautiful. And, but if Waterford go out against Limerick and it actually is successful for them, can you see that being like the sort of radical change that other teams are like, okay, well, this is what we need to do? Because like Limerick are one of the great teams we've seen in hurling over the last couple of years. So if it works, yeah, what if it works? Other teams are going to be like, yeah, we're going to try this. We're going to we need to do something radical to actually get anywhere near the All Ireland. I, I, I'm not, I'm not on board with this. <laughs> I'm not on the bus. That's it. No. 
You're uh, slashing the tires of the bus <laughs> and burning it and uh, and breaking the windows. Okay, fair enough. What about Cork? Uh, the um, Cork Clare game. Um, I, like, look, I think both these teams are relatively happy with where they are at the moment, are they? Yeah. Look, I. I Two eighteen apiece um, on Sunday. Um, Clare needed Wexford to beat Limerick to to qualify for the semi final. So realistically, that was never going to happen. Um, Aidan McCarthy scored one eleven. They've really got a goal. They had a spread of scores um, after that. Um, probably disappointed that they didn't get the win over Cork. Um, just to kind of keep that momentum. Obviously, you remember Clare decimated Cork last year in the championship. So if they had beaten them again there might have been that little bit of a hangover coming into the championship that bit of nervousness but now obviously Cork two late points Conor Cahalan got a screamer um, from out on the right hand side and Conor Lehan got a great point to get the draw to keep Cork um, unbeaten as well as tip so I suppose the game had merit in that Podrick Power the Cork full forward got a got a, another great goal after eight minutes um, we saw more we saw more players um by the end of the season, I don't know if I'll remember all of the players' names, but right now it looks very impressive. Um, so we obviously have semi-finals and a final to go. And I guess when so the semi-finals is like another opportunity for um, the management team to get players out and play a high-intensity game. So I suspect because initially when I was thinking about this, do they actually want semi-finals? You know, is this a little bit like if? Mayo and Roscommon had to play each other in a league final as it was potential three or four weeks ago before Roscommon started to lose some games. They wouldn't really want to face each other two weeks in a row. But I, I do wonder if maybe actually these games are quite useful to get players as close as you can to championship pitch without having them tip over. Yeah, I, I think we're learning a lot from the rugby actually, which is shocking to say. But if you look at the way the Irish team went after the Grand Slam and targeted every team, and weren't afraid of showing their hand, you know, and uh, tried to get to the pitch of it um, as best they could over the course of eight weeks and and successfully did that. And the confidence that that's instilled in that Irish team, you know, I think GA teams could take a lot from that, and especially the four teams in the semifinals this weekend. Go after it, you know, show your hand. You know, maybe your hand will be too good for other teams in the long run. Um, don't be, I suppose, scared of, of giving away too much, Um Build the confidence in the players to know that they can do it. So for me, I think Tip and Limerick Saturday night, they're going to go at it. Um, and I don't see why they shouldn't. And the same with Cork and Kilkenny on Sunday. Go at it if they have the players. Like I know Adrian Mullen won't be in the setup for Kilkenny on Sunday. I know that TJ Reid is unlikely to be in the setup. So it won't be full, you know, championship teams, but certainly get as close to your championship team as you can and go at it. Because it's four weeks. Like it's it's not very long, but it's also an age in, in many respects in terms of team preparation for the start of the round robin. Yeah, and I, I think that the players themselves need to know that they can do it. Like it's it's not a case of, you know, holding the handbrake until, you know, the week before championship and then saying, right, lads, show me your absolute limit. I think players have to know that they can do it. The, there was a late chance for Waterford. Um, I, ca- I can't remember the player who who struck the ball, but he was in a high pressure situation and it's inches wide. Um, in championship, you'd be hoping that would go over. It, that's what the league is important for because you show these players in these positions and whether they can handle it. Yeah, okay. We should talk about Kildare. Uh, the late draw that they got against Offaly puts them through to the league final and they'll play either Offaly or Kerry in that league final. They'll obviously have a week off and um, hope that uh, 
Offaly versus Kerry is uh, one of those games with seven red cards for both teams and they come in depleted to the final. But it's uh, like a seismic moment in Kildare Hurling that they're on the verge of playing Division 1 Hurling. I saw a tweet actually on Sunday. I think it was uh, Kildare is Hurling only. So I had a little chuckle at that. Um, you know, Kildare Hurling, I suppose, has been the bridesmaid to Kildare football for so, so many years. And and they didn't have the same funding involved. Um, but massive... Um, efforts in the last number of years to get involved in uh, Kilkenny leagues, to get involved in Dublin leagues, to to bring up the standard of, of Kildare hurling. And I was in Croke Park last May um, and saw them uh, in Croke Park and was really impressed with their uh, physical conditioning and their striking. Their, they were very clean hurlers. And my worry is that to go up to Division 1 now might do them a disservice. Um they need kind of all of the players to build together. You'll see from the likes of Leash, Westmead, Antrim, uh, it's been a struggle. And, you know, Antrum were seven points poor against Kilkenny, lost by 18 points to tip by the end of the league. Kildare, while having this seismic moment and getting up to Division 1, it might be a year too soon. So you can't, you shouldn't always wish for things that you're not ready for. Yeah, look, I, I, I understand that if they go up, the likelihood is that they'll come straight back down. Um, but to be one of those teams who is at least in that uh, um, group, in that tier, would be a, a leap forward from a bit where, as you said, like uh, they were in the third tier a couple of, a couple of years ago. So like the mm-hmm. job that Herity has done is is massively progressive. And I, yes. I also think that like uh, there's a population centre in Kildare where there is an opportunity for them to grow the game and actually become a proper dual county but it's going to take a massive leap of imagination from the GAA central level to fund them and to fund Westmead and to fund Antrim because there's a lot of lip service paid to the notion that uh, hurling is our national sport when actually it's a sport played in 10 counties properly and it's so hard to break into those top 10 that ultimately unless a massive amount of funding is given over we're going to be stuck with that. I've seen more promotion of hurling in Uganda in the last three months than I have in places like Westmead, Leash and Antrim. Like, I, I genuinely agree with you. There needs a, a massive um, change in the mindset in terms of how they promote the game and, and the funding for, for the game. Um, I think Kildare, if they were to go up to Division 1, would require the fans in and, and the people in the Jane Kildare to be incredibly supportive because if those losses were to occur the way that you know happened for the likes of Antrim Westmead and Leash it, it takes confidence out of teams and uh, the GA would really need to support them if they were to go up to Division 1 and I, I don't know I, Jarrow like if, if you saw Kildare getting uh, hockeying three weeks in a row you know is that something that you're going to be encouraged by or are you going to look to hide from it if uh, you were a Kildare supporter? You'd hope that the stuff that's coming along underneath is is giving you some comfort that uh, they're going to be able to improve. I guess, like, uh, Nace ended up losing in the end to Ballyhale in the Senior All-Ireland Club Championship, Leinster Club Championship this year, whereas they've been playing intermediate in previous years. So you can you can begin to hang your hat on some signs of progress. Um, I, you know, uh, did was uh, did Leicester Westmead drew at Wexford, didn't they last year, two years ago? Uh, yes. Yeah. So like, yeah, look, yeah. I, I I accept the point. If it was seven twenty four to three points or four points or five points in in all of the games, you're like, oh, this is a disaster. But um, 
you know, with funding, with uh, with help, uh, maybe that's not going to be the case. I guess, look, I, I'm, I've got to be an optimist here. Yes, I know, because where would we go otherwise? I know. But I, I just feel... Your, your, uh, your brutalist cork realism here is, is crushing me, Sarah. That's like, yeah. I understand. <laughs> You're the big dog and you've always been the big dog and you understand. You don't, you, you don't understand what it's like for us. I actually played camogie for Dublin for three years. I absolutely understand what it's like to take a beating. <laughs> So, I, I look. I everyone always asks, you know, how can improvements be made? But it is genuinely little building blocks. And I have to admire David Herity for going in to that Kildare group and sticking with them for the last. I think he's this is his third year with them, and I, I really enjoyed five. watching. It's what is year five? I think so. Yeah. Jesus. Well, I heard, I heard him say that. On, I heard him say that recently. But um, maybe I, I, I need to just. Uh, I think he's brilliant. Like I actually, again, you never come away from conversation with Her- with Herity without going. Jesus, that guy. I would follow him anywhere. You know. Well, I I, co- I was I played for him for a year, and uh, we had right uh, we had right battles the two of us. But I genuinely admire what he does with teams. Um, he he really he's so disciplined and so dogged in, and and he gets results so uh, I have to admire him and I really enjoyed watching them in Croke Park um, this year um, so you know that's that's a bonus yeah. but would I pay eighteen euro next February to see them play Kilkenny probably not because eighteen euro is a lot of money to be watching something that could go horribly wrong all right on that cheery note <laughs> Sarah thanks a million <laughs> bye. Sarah, don't even give us thoughts on the uh, hurling situation there. Up kill there is all I say. Uh, Kathleen, um, I mentioned briefly to Arsblog a little bit earlier on about the game between Arsenal and Bayern. What's the Katie McCabe scenario at the moment? Uh, she's back in the team, pretty much. Um, I think Arsenal have had a bit of resurgence since they won the League Cup. You know, it gave them... I suppose they played with the bit of grit that they have been missing for the last while. Tonight's going to be really difficult for them. Like Bayern are really on a good run at the moment. They're 11 games unbeaten and they've won their last 13 games at home, I think. And we're or Arsenal are away to them as well. So it'll be interesting to see. They are missing players like Linda Dahlman and Gwyn as well, who are some of their top players. They both play with the Germany national team. Um Emma Byrne on Koi Gig has said a couple of times that she thinks Arsenal can win the Champions League, which I think is optimistic at this stage. But also with the way they're going in the league, it's looking like they might not make those the top three places. And if that Ooh, happens... Oh, so they need to win, right? Yeah, so winning would be kind of important for them. Uh, and it's also the 10-year anniversary of the last time they won it. So it would be a, kind of, it would be a nice full circle moment for the team if they did manage it. But I think with missing the likes of Mida Miedema, it's going to be too difficult for them this season. Uh, so on balance this is tricky but winnable over the two legs yeah I think they definitely have the squad there to win it Um, Bayern play a very like physical attacking style of football and I think that Arsenal's defence is probably the area that they're going to struggle in but if they can get that midfield to click if they can get you know Kim Lil I mean Leah Williamson played in midfield the last time they played and she was sensational and that's not her normal position so if they can get that midfield to click I think that's going to be essential to them doing well over the two legs tonight might be a bit of a push but I'd say if they get a draw tonight and then a win at home in London they'll be they'll be happy out uh, am I right it's a half five kickoff or it's early quarter to six I quarter think to six yeah okay so you can get game. it on days and OTB AM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition available now